Alright, so you want to get this little uh, barn dance started here? Are you staring at a red signal again, Paul? Oh, please. <laughs> All right. Hey, welcome to another episode of Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm one of the hosts. I'm Paul Gillette, and joining me today is Christopher Palmarez. And all the way on the East Coast, where the sun is going down, is Jim Lincoln. Guys, let's do another great show for the people. Do we have to do that? All right. Chris, why don't you uh, start the uh, first segment, in spite of what James just said. Let's make it a good one anyway. All right, Paul, no problem. Let's get this kicked off. I would like to introduce a good friend of mine, Craig Martin, to the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. You may know his company, BLMA Models, which develops HO and N-scale models and accessories. They recently made an announcement at the National Train Show in Atlanta this month to a new product release. And now, Craig, could you give us what that is and a little background on that, too? Hey, 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 hey. Well, thanks, guys. Um <laughs> yeah, the the new announcement uh, was an HO or is an HO and N scale BX166. It's a Santa Fe built um, 60 foot double door standard height uh, beer car, or as we're calling it a beer car. It's used for all sorts of different um, commodities that need to be stored in an insulated uh, car. Uh, they'll be available in 24 road numbers. Um, we're taking pre-orders currently until September 15th. And um, again, it's an ATSF built car. So for the ATSF modelers or anybody that can use these in their fleet. Uh, I think it'll be a welcomed addition. Here we back. Sorry. I'm back. I got kicked out of the podcast here. I guess oh, wow. That's <laughs> okay. I, I, no, we're, but good. The, we're good. I have a question, so, Greg. Sure. Yeah. Are you taking phone orders? Can I give you a phone, phone, phone order right now for some of those in NCL? Phone orders, smoke signals, carrier pigeons, you name it, we'll take it. Oh, okay. I mean, we appreciate the business either way, yeah. Yeah, we do. We take phone orders. We're here uh, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. No, I'm talking about, like, right now on the phone call. Oh, well, we could, if you want to give your credit card number, you know, over the over the thing here, we can. That's yeah, they, I'll just I'll just <laughs> broadcast it right over the podcast. Absolutely. Right. Fantastic. It's 555 and you want $1 million worth of cars, I assume, right? Yes. Yes, I want every one that you make. <laughs> All right, yeah. That's when Dr. Evil goes, $1 million. million, $1 million. <laughs> Stick the pinky out towards your mouth. $1 million. $1 billion. <laughs> Craig, did you guys uh, research this car, I presume, before decided on what you were going to move to production with? Yeah, I mean, so any project, you know, starts with a whole ton of R&D. I mean, there's, whether it's even a signal or something much more complex, like, for instance, a, you know, beer car like this or a freight car in general, um, it does take a lot of of research. So a buddy of mine, Matt Ferulio, um, did the research on this car. He's in Colorado. Actually, I went out to visit him about a year and a half ago, and he said, hey, this would make a great prototype. Um, at that point, we did more research on it. He specifically went out and just went crazy on these cars to find all these photos and just, yeah, it just, it, it's, there is a mind-boggling amount of information that we have on the car, but subsequently we hope to produce a very accurate model because of the work that he did on it. So 
I would say this this process for this car probably started no less than a year and a half ago. Um, and here we are, you know, now with the announcement, with the engineering complete, the paint scheme artwork complete, and uh, you know, full-fledged model coming out sometime mid next year. Okay. And the reason I ask is because we got in a big discussion of this at the uh, at the hobby store or the model railroad store is it's an insulated unit. So do they take those and pre-cool them or is it just ambient temperature and then the product itself, whatever its temperature is, it just maintains it? I think you're right. I, I've never heard anything specifically about them being pre-cooled. I mean, that's a great question, but I would assume that whatever the temperature is inside of the car, because it's insulated, it should never get too hot, and therefore it should stay like a cave, right? It's just kind of insulated and never going to get above a certain degree, which would you know disrupt the product. Um, we know that these cars have carried the two things I've heard the most, which, number one, are Coors Beer out of Colorado, the second one being Gallo Wine out of California, and apparently those trains or these blocks of cars were running from California all the way to the East Coast. So um, my guess is, yeah, they're very tempered inside, but I, I, I've never heard of it. It's a good question, but I haven't heard of anybody, you know, pre-chilling the product to go in there and keep the car cooled down for the duration of the trip. Okay. All right. Good answer. Uh, Chris, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just got carried away. I wanted to know that. Well, um Craig, uh, what are some of the paint schemes that you can offer for this car? Well, I mean, this car, I think we've identified about 12 different, as I'm going to call them, paint variations. In terms of schemes, I think there's only a handful, but of the variations, um, we've got everything from as delivered with the big shock control on the side, big Santa Fe logo, which I know a lot of people are waiting for, and I will note that that will come probably in the second run or second release of this car. Uh, beyond that, we have the brown car which are doing now the red car box car red um, after that i assume the third run most likely will be a bnsf car within bnsf alone there's the wedge paint scheme there's the circular logo there's all sorts of different variations so it will be difficult you know for us and even with the first release of these cars to do kind of a one paint scheme fits all type thing because they were all modified and rebuilt at different times and they've got diff just different dimmy data all over the place so we will do our best to you know mimic that for the prototype per road number but it gets a little bit difficult because again these cars have been around since 1974 and they've had so many changes since then now has Absolutely. has any other like leasing companies or any other railroads gotten these you know like weird ones like eec or you, yeah, you know what um you know what not that i know of and it didn't come up in the research i think they're all still a few aside from a few that i know have been wrecked i believe that they're all still in at this point bnsf or atsf forty yeah. marks okay so these are pretty much like captured service type cars that, that were designated for Colorado and then also the line shipper out of California, too. Exactly. I know that some people kind of, you know, squawked at the fact that we're calling it a beer car. It's it's easy to market as a beer car because, again, you see a ton of these things outside of Colorado. Matt, who I mentioned earlier that did the research, we will be publishing a uh, about a six-page PDF all it's just a lot of information on the car, a lot of photographs, and also kind of a run run over of what it all takes at Coors and where these cars are at Coors and what they're doing at Coors. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just this. I wouldn't say it's captive specifically for beer service. There's a lot of other services, but it's definitely any type of you know big commodity. In this case, beer or wine. 
or other types of things that need to be cooled, but not specifically only Santa Fe or only for beer. It's, it's all sorts of different things. Right. Now, um, you were also producing some loads. How, how are those turning out? We are, yeah, so we've produced, well, we are in the production process now of producing loads for the 89-foot PTTX and upcoming JTTX uh, flat cars, the F89J flat cars that we will have later this year. Um, the pipe loads are fantastic. I mean, once the bottom line is this. We're really waiting on a lot of product right now. We'll have the Tropicana Reefers, which are another project, the PTTX flat cars, the pipe loads, our fourth run of the Top Guns with a new uh, smooth tub to them. So there's a lot of pending releases that we will have probably within the next few months and throughout the end of the year. Um, my opinion on the pipe loads is that, you know, we, we wanted to produce something that looked real, that was cost-effective, that um, basically looked like some of the custom-made and, and scratch-built pipe loads we've seen from some great modelers. So we went out, sourced the black, you know, banding material, which is a, an actual tape, and the factory is going to pre-paint the pipes. They're going to add the that, you know, black tape material that looks like the metal banding. We will have... Uh, injection molded wood you know well to simulate wood cradles that go underneath each of the pipes so it's they're they're just like the prototype it is a unique offering and that they're only offered directly through our website the reason being and i've explained this to some people in person but it's good to get this information out we we support our dealers 100 percent on this project having to, to source the, the black banding material separately it was something that if we had you know had our normal markup and margin on this type of product they'd be probably a 40 dollar pipe load so to, you know, not go that route and to offer something that's cost-effective for people, and because it's kind of a secondary add-on product, it's just going to be a direct-only product. But again, we're looking at delivery of these sometime later this year. That's that's terrific. Uh, are they going to be lettered for like Napa pipe or anything specific like that, or we're not just we're not to, yeah, we're not, and then you can figure that out or. Yeah, exactly. We're just kind of leaving it at you know we have two different prototype photos. We got the dimensions from them, and from there. Whatever people want to uh, to do with them is their own call. I had one guy that literally called in and said, hey, you know, he wanted to know all about the pipe, where they run from, where they run to. And I said, man, I'm a train guy. I'm a foamer, rivet counter, whatever you want to call it. I'm not a pipe guy. I'm not a pipe foamer. <laughs> you know, all, all we know is that these loads are on these cars. We've measured them. What specific purpose they're for? I've heard some are for natural gas, and I'm sure there's all sorts of different uses for pipe. Couldn't tell you anything about, again, specifically what these pipes in, on the prototype were, were going to or what they were used for. Well, on the model, you know, you get a pipe, you get loaded, and then you have some of the beer. It sounds like a party to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this is going to be a product that's offered in N-Scale and HO2, I assume. Yeah, as far as the pipe loads, I, I would kind of categorize BLMA in two major different segments of products. One being our scenery products. The scenery products are always in stock, uh, or at least we do our best to keep them in stock. These would be anything from our, you know, plastic uh, bridges that we sell to the signals to the locomotive detail parts. Um, that stuff is in stock constantly. That should be the same deal with the pipe loads. The freight okay. cars are on a, you know, per order basis where we announce them. We take pre-orders for them. I realize some people, you know, I, I read the comments online that people don't like to pre-order or this and that, or their shop didn't pre-order in time. The pre-orders really help us gauge what the demand for the project's going to be. I mean, the bottom line is, and I always like to refer to this, I, I love business, this is a business. We have to make sure that we are mitigating our risk in terms of not ordering too much stuff to have on the shelf after the run's complete and, and the demand has died down. 
And the other end of that is we want to make sure we produce enough so that the people that did pre-order, the shops that did pre-order, have enough to fill the demand. So um, the, the cars will come and go, but the pipe loads and other items will be here to stay. So go, going into that, that aspect of business, uh, it, it, pre-ordering, is that how you really gauge a product or before you do R&D for it, or do you do the R&D first and then gauge if you should go further with it? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, from the point that, that we announce a product, there already has been easily a year, year and a half, sometimes decades worth of, you know, work and, and research done to get to that point. So really, I think in this market, you know, we're not Coca-Cola, we're not Ford, we don't have, you know, market research that can, you know, with just tons of just analytics on what people want and what this and focus groups and this and that. It's really just, I'm a trained guy. We have trained friends. All of us communicate. We read things on the forums. We hear things at the shows. We see things in the prototype. And at some point, you just have to look at some projects and say, hey, this is going to be a great thing and uh, we'll move I forward. Like with trains. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there are a lot of comments that come in of, of projects that we appreciate any comment that comes, and I want to throw that out there. But there are some things that, you know, instantly I, I can point out the reasons why. And you would think in some cases, too, that here we have a one-road car. Well, it, it is unique. The, the Top Guns that we did are a one-road car. They're only Norfolk Southern. Well, they have a few of them have been sold off, and now some are going to scrap. But the point is, it's a unit train car, so you see a ton of them. With these beer cars, you see them in big chunks, you know, uh, whether they're at any point in the country. They usually run in groups. So there are certain aspects of any type of model that I look for both. Is it a unique car? Has it been offered before? Sure, there's plenty of beer cars on the market. Is this a unique beer car that has some visual difference? Yes. Is it a Santa Fe prototype, which I know for a long time people have been looking, Santa Fe modelers specifically, obviously, have been looking for prototypes that are Santa Fe, you know, specific. This hits on those areas. So um, with each project that we do, it's just kind of a gut instinct of filling out emails, you know, uh, discussion forums, going to the trade shows at the, the National Train Show, which we were at two weeks ago. Um, all that feedback really just helps us push forward on different projects. What about um, what about the the recent product, the Union Pacific refrigerator car? Now, that was a, a model that was also announced by another company, Exact Rail. Mm-hmm. Uh, that had did did that did it, did that affect your sales at all with with, with your product? Having um, two two different sources for the same car. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny to read things on the forums where people say, oh, my God, one of the companies must have copied the other company, or maybe it's the factories in China selling tooling back and forth. But none of that's true. Really what it boils down to is, again, there's there's years of work that goes into even getting to the point to announce a car or to cut tooling or any of that. So with that situation, it was simply a matter of we both worked on it at the same time, two completely different companies Obviously, had we known, I'm sure one of us would have said, well, I'll pick the BNSF car, we'll do the UP car, or vice versa, whatever. Right. Um, it, it's, it's an unfortunate situation. It's been one of our best-selling products ever, so did it hurt sales? It, it definitely, it's been a great-selling product, so, you know, I, I don't know, but it's um, it's been one of our best-sellers ever, and, you know, now we're trying to capitalize on the fact that CEFX has some. UP is modifying them uh, with different reefer units. Some of them have different doors. So we're going to go back and try to do all these different variations, which will update the model and give people something different than has previously been offered 
Um, so, it, it, you know, in this marketplace, again, we're running a business, Xactro is running a business. I, I feel very comfortable in the market right now that, you know, I'm friends with all the guys from Exact Rail, Atlas, and basically all of the companies kind of talk. We may not talk specifically all the time about what projects we're working on. However, I think that there's a great kind of camaraderie um, that's in the market or in, in the, I would say, back-end business side of it right now. So for that, I'm thankful. I've got a lot of good friends in the industry, and um, some things happen like that that are unfortunate, but it's not the end of the world, and uh, we push forward and keep doing other cars. Well, it's terrific that it's been a great seller. Um, I think it's one of those cars where it was just so in demand for so long that there was just this pent-up demand for it, and it's yeah. going to just keep on going because it's a unit train, you know. Exactly. So, well, think, and the whole RailX, the whole RailX thing with Mapbound from Stream Trains doing that episode on the, the salad train or whatever they call it, exactly. um, all that stuff kind of helps. And it, it's a cool train. I mean, they're they're visually very very unique cars, and uh, I agree. It's been it's been it a, good is a cool train, pun not intended, huh? Yeah, right. Our <laughs> <laughs> our yeah yeah you'll be here all week, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's. Along that line, then, what you've talked about with the planning, the research, and so forth, when you set about to get into the industry, you know, supplying in-scale, HA-scale cars and detail parts, what did you, you know, define as the vision? What was your, if you want to share, the strategic direction? Because I'm hearing evidences of that in the way you describe your process. But can you share that with us, and uh, Craig, how you started formulating these ideas and then it started executing them? Sure, yeah. I think the, the number one thing to kind of keep in mind is that I, I'm i 28 years old now. I've, I started BLMA when I was 15, and I would say that had I started the company today, I would go at it much differently than I, than I did. Um, not that I regret anything or that I'm unhappy with anything. It's just that I've learned so much. It's only because of what I've learned that I could take a different approach on things today. And, and subsequently, that's where I'm at today is with all my experience. I started when I was 15 doing custom painting. So I would, you know, go online to discussion forums, say, hey, I do custom painting. People would send in their models with a check. I would paint it, send it back. Um, during that, I started to manufacture by hand end scale detail parts for the locomotives, grab irons, cut levers. Um, and it was doing that that I started to then mass produce those items. And they're still a big part of our lineup today, not you know, maybe revenue-wise, but I think they're an asset to the to our, you know, BLMA catalog that we still offer the items for N-scalers and HO-scalers. But the point is it's it's grown over time with, with you know, how I've grown as a modeler, how I've grown as a person. So you can see where we went from the small detail parts to then getting into, um, I think our first ready, in fact, I'm positive, our first ready-to-run products were the yard office and our portable toilets. The portable po- toilets were something that's kind of goofy. I mean, I, I'm probably a pretty goofy guy as we most are in the model train industry uh, okay. or model trains in general, right? But, <laughs> yeah. No, never. No. <laughs> I know. That's a secret. Don't tell anybody. Anyway, it's, it's just, it's all kind of come to fruition again through my experiences and, and how I've grown. But to this point now, we've done everything from brass truss bridges to freight cars to signals. We kind of more so than I think a lot of other companies, we've got a smattering of all sorts of different things. It's kind of a smorgasbord of uh, a product, but at the same token, too, it kind of comes back to the, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, and I, I think we have a, a wide line of products that, um, in, in any event, you know, what we're trying to do in the business is fill demand. 
So if we see, I saw demand for brass truss bridges, knowing that there weren't many new ones on the market, the brass ones that did exist were going for thousands of dollars. We had an opportunity to bring out some very nice bridges uh, at, at a great price point compared to what was out there, and we did. And so they sold great, and you know, you move on, and now we're on other projects. And, and again, it's, it's always about filling the demand, but ultimately it's a win-win situation for the modelers because when we hear the demand, we want to produce for it, and then the people want to buy it, and it's, it's a kind of a great scenario. Moving forward, obviously, you know, we have bigger ideas because, again, I'll keep referring to the fact that I love business. This is a business. We do have to, well, I would say me specifically because I'm kind of the commander of the ship. I have to make decisions on what's going to be the best, best you know, solution to where our budget goes to, to do new products. So with a lot of this stuff, you'll see more freight cars from us, things that are maybe bigger ticket items that have a good margin and, and allow us to build demand and, and keep going and uh, produce more cool stuff for, for model riveters. Yeah. As a comment, getting back to, you know, you all laughed about it, but I think the porta potty is a brilliant product because if you're a modern day modeler, something that's everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I mean, I have a, I, I have a, I had a uh, small end scale railroad and was for the first time I saw them, I was like, oh, I mean, I gotta buy these. I mean, if you're yeah. remotely modern and you have some, you know, some, Anything, any, you know, industrial site, construction site, anything. It's a brilliant thing that most people wouldn't think of because they'd say, ah, oh, that's goofy. Why mm-hmm. would I want it? Why would I do a porty potty? But they're omnipresent. Yep. They, yep. they really are. I mean, the other cool thing, too, is I've seen maintenance away trains with a porta potty on the flat car. Or <laughs> on bullet, you know, I mean, hey, when you got to go, you got to go. You, yeah. You go. Yep. You know, it's one of those details that often gets overlooked, and it's just something as mundane as like that. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, back here in our elusive world that we've constructed, you know, it's people still have to go. (laughs) Yep, yep, exactly. Or or another one, Jersey Barriers. I mean, I I know that's not what you call them, but Jersey Barriers. Yeah, K-Rails, Jersey Barriers, yeah, that's... You, know. you drive the highway, you see them everywhere. We yep. it, Again, I mean, it kind of goes along with my thought on unit train type cars, where we've done a lot of unit train type cars, the Reefers, now the BX-166, the Top Gun coal cars. It's it's something that you need a lot of that we're trying to, you know, recoup our tooling costs and, and again, be able to produce then more stuff for, for the model. And the Mooners. The Mooners. Yep. Mooners. The Mooners. <laughs> figured that would come up. Those are unique in the industry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> price are coming out with anything competing to that anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I have other ideas for figures that um, would be would be fantastic. That we haven't done them yet. Um, but yeah, they're the, the Mooners have been a great seller as well. It's it's just something that you know what we we've all seen the the Godzilla on an N-Track module that's eating a car that you're like, what? That's so out of place. Mooners are something that is along that same goofy line, but it's prototypical. You ask any train crew if they've ever been, you know, mooned or flipped off or flashed, they probably have seen it all at this point. If they've been on the railroad for a couple of years, so um, especially our friend Chris Lemus, you know, yeah, that's right. It's never a dull moment on the railroad, I'm sure. It, you know, I I never had too many of those. All I remember one time is it was middle of the night. I don't even remember where it was. Uh, we, as we were coming down, we're coming down the main line in relatively the middle of nowhere, and we're passing one of the signal boxes. 
there's cab signals on the BNA, so you know every mile and a quarter there's a signal box. As we're coming up to the signal box, a <laughs> we see a female leg come out from behind the like just giving us leg as we're going past, and we're both and me and the engineer are like what? Just a leg. <laughs> it's just like, and you know, and obviously it was so dark. It was so dark we couldn't, you know, once the headlight was passed, there's, there's no way we could see what was on the other side of the, the uh, signal shed. But we're like, and no, it was uh, me. It was me. There was there was a trainee running, and then there was the the engineer who was doing, you know, helping the trainee. And me and the engineer saw it, and the trainee never saw it. He's like, what the heck is that? He's like, what, what, what? <laughs> well, there you go, Craig. You can put your signal boxes with a couple legs on them. That's yeah, right. a couple legs sticking out. Yeah, <laughs> just j- just a leg, you know. That that's it. Like, what is Never that? Anybody. Never heard anybody. <laughs> no so, figures. No figures were the har- were harmed in the making of this. Yeah, <laughs> you just saw enough legs, you know. <laughs> so, Craig, uh, let me ask you something. Uh, has there been any consideration um, on other scales beyond HONN scale for BLMA? Um, well, we, we do have a few Z-Scale products. Um, I think it's it's no secret that Z-Scale, anybody in Z-Scale will tell you that obviously it's not the biggest market. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no fun. Yeah. The, the, whole, I, the whole thing I can say about it is this. You know, we, most of us, companies in the industry have, you know, limited resources in terms of capital to put forth on new products. So with that said, again, it's my job to make sure that we're investing in the products that will give the biggest return to therefore do more and more and more products. So I can't see us getting into anything. Um, I know that the tooling, for instance, like for O-Scale products is just outrageous because they're just so big. I mean, when you start getting into shipping, you, you know, items that are just that big, it just becomes logistically a nightmare. Um, so <clears throat> for now, N scale and HO scale is doing pretty good, and uh, we'll continue on that path. So Z scale hasn't really made a big uprising at all. You know what? There's the um, there is kind of the mindset of if you build it, they will come. Right. Specifically, we we haven't built it. You know, we we have maybe eight to ten different Z scale products. So I I can't say that. If we weren't to make, or if we were to make more, they would do great, or they wouldn't do great. I don't know. All I can tell you is that, based off my experience, we were doing consistent with the N scale and the H scale products, so we'll continue on that path. You know, going back into the kind of the porta potty training, of just well, what you see that's common. You also have a billboard, and mm-hmm. it's one of those products that just gets. It gets overlooked so easily because yeah, yeah. You know, we we focus in so much on the trains and the, the signage and um, some of the other right of way details that are along of the right of way. Um, really help make a, a scene complete. And how has the billboard product been working out for you? The well, yeah. So our billboards we make a modern dual sided billboard you'd see on the side of any interstate or any area that's got people. Frankly. Um, they've been great sellers, and I think you know one one point that I do want to make about that product is that the retail price. 
I, I see people's reaction at the trade shows and look at it and they go, wow, that's thirty nine ninety five or whatever the retail price, H-O-N-N scale is roughly around that. Um, the thing is, you know, on some of these products, even though it is a billboard and it's something that's off the tracks and we're all train guys and this isn't, you know, we're not billboard guys or ad guys, you know, to, to just make those products, I think we had to do five different molds for the H-O scale billboard. And on top of that, it's got etch metal walkways on it. It's got 10 different ads with it. It's a pretty intricate model for what it's worth. So um, just to make the point that they're very intricate, that's why we have the retail price set of what it is. But people only usually need one as well. So it's not something that's going to break the bank because you're not going to be buying, you know, 20 of them. But they've been a great seller, and I think you're right. You know, we're all about trains, 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 but there's so much more that goes on both sides of the tracks that, people can't ignore. That's why we've also done very well with the signals. The signal line, uh, you know, that we have is growing. The searchlight signals, the modern signals, our signal bridges, um, all that stuff has done very well. And I think it's because, again, it's, it goes hand in hand with the trains, but it's not specifically, you know, it's not a train, but it's right along with it. Well, and and what you've just described, the billboards, the, the signal bridges, it's those nuances that sometimes just separate a really good uh, model railroad from a great one. So I think you've really been uh, successful at capturing that segment of the market, that nuancing of the whole uh, the whole message there. I, I say great job. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. We, we're, we're trying. I mean, I would... It's interesting with this with this business, you know, every project that we do, every freight car, we learn something. So, you know, with everything, we're getting better and better at looking at certain things. But every project also presents different challenges. So it's uh, I, I one of my favorite sayings is it's, it's never a dull moment. And it's not because with everything new, there's something to figure out, something to do. And uh, we're just doing the best that we can. Now, Craig, I'm going to ask you a weird question because I'm looking at pictures on your in, your website. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the details on the fronts of the locomotives. And you'll probably understand this. And I don't know whether the other two guys will, but a couple of these, <laughs> couple, well, I don't know, you may, but a couple of these locomotives have N-scale type F couplers on them. Okay. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, but I don't know specifically what models you're... This one, you're... it looks like looks like a BNSF. There's a BNSF, uh, I don't know what it is, Look could be an sd60 or uh it's showing off it's showing off the mu hoses okay and i was like i never knew anyone made a type f coupler and i don't think you guys are in the coupler business you're not we are not yeah all i can say is there's some amazing modeling on our you know customer supplied photographs there okay but he did it's not us but not you okay wouldn't put it past somebody okay because i'm looking at that type f couplers what the heck is up with that yep yeah yeah, there's some amazing stuff out there. I always tell people when they call up and they say, hey, can I take one of your radio towers and do something weird with it? I always say, you know what? The sky's the limit. We've all seen modeling that just you wouldn't even believe it if you didn't see it with your own eyes. So there's some very talented people out there. And uh, anyway, more my hat's off to them, more power to them to uh, keep it up. Well, I just want to let you know, Craig, I'm going to try using your N-scale chain link fence on an H-scale freight car for the the sugar beet uh, rapid discharge hoppers. Oh, yeah. Had this extension going around the top of it, and yep, it yep, looks exactly. like the end scale uh, chain link fence is just about the right size to if I'm know, not re- mis- replicate that. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I'll have to do a little research. I think 
One of my buddies did a car like that, and it might even be on our detailed model section. That's exactly what you're talking about, a B car with the extensions on it. And he used exactly what you're saying, the, uh, the chain link fence to do it. I'll have to, we'll be in touch, I guess, after the thing. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see if I can find that photo for you. But it was Henry Baez who did it, if it is on the website or not. So anyway. I, I'd love to check that out because yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a product or project. That's a project I got coming up. As far as a product coming up, I have something that might be of interest to you. Um, I'm working on a couple microscale decals for your your billboard. Oh, cool! And one of them, the you know Union Pacific is putting out a lot of billboards reminding people to be safe around railroad right of ways. Yeah, I'm doing decals for those. And cool. I know Norfolk Southern has uh, an ad campaign going for it, too, pretty much around that as well. So I'm, okay. I'm designing some of these billboards that I've seen that are real billboards and making some decals for that will be compatible with your product. Yeah, very cool. So. Very cool. Um, have you done any modeling yourself lately? You know what? Sad to say, no. Aside from going over to friends' houses and maybe you know pitching in here and there on a weekend day, um, the, the extent of my modeling recently, in the past couple of years, has been so focused on getting these you know models to the market. It's mostly product testing um, and things of that nature. So unfortunately, again, from going from custom painting everything, and that was what I was doing in high school, to to what we're doing now, it's just that I, I you know what? At some point in my life, I'll have the time to do it. And uh, when I have more time, hopefully we will, uh, I'll build a layout and, you know, use a lot of my products as well. So um, I do want to get back into it. I still rail fan all the time and uh, that's still great. But, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to get off work dealing with model trains all day and then say, hey, I'm going to sit down and build such and such. So that day will come. But for now, I've, I'm focusing on the work to bring these uh, products to the market. Well, I mean, the rail fanning is product research, right? That's true, right? Yeah, it's, that's exactly right. So that's it's true. a tax write-off. So anytime, anytime, anytime you go rail fanning at the Hatchapi, it's like well, you write off the mileage. Exactly, exactly. I'm sorry. Well, hey, dude, I, I gotta go. It's a business expense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For Craig, it's exactly. I gotta go upstairs and overlook the Fullerton Station. <laughs> I was yeah. telling Paul yeah, and uh, Jim yeah, earlier about your location there, okay. right, right across yeah. the tracks from Fullerton. Yeah, all day long. I'm surprised we haven't heard a train go by yet, but I've got the windows shut here in the office. But, uh, yeah, we, we face the tracks all day long, so we're seeing Surfliners, Metrolink, BNSF Freights. It's, uh, it's a great spot. That's right. Well, no, I, I remember the first time I was on an ES-44, and, you know, the engineer turns on the bell, and I'm like, that's not a bell. That sounds like a recording of a bell. Yep. Look, it's a recording of a bell. That's actually an interesting idea. No moving parts, but it's still, like, that's just... When you first hear it, it's like, that's so wrong. Yeah, I think Milwaukee Road had an electronic bell. I think you're right, they did. Cheap, cheap, cheap. Actually, Craig, I have a question for you as far as, like, the younger generation and demographic. Have you noticed any sort of, like, downturn in young people getting interested or purchasing things from BLMA? Um, that's a great, great question. I would say... No, I haven't. If you go to any of the trade shows or any of the, you know, for instance, again, the NMRA show or any of the world's greatest hobby shows, I specifically, because I'm younger, I, I think that BLMA attracts a younger crowd just simply because of my age and kind of our 
in a way about advertising, and a lot of the products we make are modern. Um, I haven't seen it, but it's it's an interesting point. Again, it's it's one of those situations where I don't think the market research really exists beyond anybody's hunch to say, well, because every project is so different and you can't look at something and say, well, this didn't sell well to this group, so therefore it's not an if-then type statement. There's no, some of this stuff, you know, you can look at all the logic behind it and then it comes out and it's a great seller and the logic's gone because it didn't make any sense. It's more of an emotional type thing. So it's very difficult for me to, to look at it and gauge it, but personally, I don't see any trend in it going down. Um, obviously, there are other trends that we can't, uh, ignore. One of them is we have a database of dealers in the U.S. that we compiled, I would say, about four or five years ago that since then a good third of them have probably gone out of business. That That's a little bit alarming. However, it's the same situation of saying, well, you know what, obviously there's so many newspapers that are going bankrupt and going out, but do we have any less news today than we did 20 years ago? No, it's just changing formats. People can order online. There's a lot more online retailers. Is it changing the hobby because people can't go to the local hobby shop and see and feel something and taste it if they want? Yeah, it's, it's definitely changing that, and I think that this is a very impulsive hobby where you see it. Oh, I got to have that. I need that. I need this, and you end up, you know, with a shopping bag full of stuff. So that that's a little bit, I think, challenging moving forward. Um, so I think that the train shows are still a great opportunity for people to see this stuff, but there are different dynamics that let's face it, are, are happening in the in industry, but I don't think that they're as negative as maybe some people would think they are. So I'm, I'm keeping optimistic. I think that things are fine. I think there's always going to be rail fans, I think, with Thomas the Tank doing so well, um, NS doing things, again, like the Heritage Locomotives we talked about prior to the podcast here. Um, the Legos and Chuggington. And, yeah. Exactly. All of that stuff adds up, and I think that there's always a fascination with with the railroads, and we've all heard the statistics that all these different corridors, by the year 2030, they're going to have, you know, 200% the number of trains they do today. So there's a lot of, you know, big, bright future for the railroads, I think, in a lot of ways, maybe not with coal, but maybe now with oil or whatever is going on. I mean, I think that there's always going to be a consistent level of interest among just a certain percentage of the population. So I hope that that then trickles down to the model train people and, uh, you know, we continue to have a, a solid base of uh, consumers. I mean, I, I would say on that note, virtually, I don't know, maybe one a day or two a week, two to three a week on on one of the – particularly the midday train when it's a nice – you know, when the, when the weather's nice, I do a midday trip to Needham. There's a mother or the today it was grandparents bringing their four- or five-year-old for their first train ride. Oh, cool. They're going three, you know, three or four stops. It's a, you know, 15-minute ride, and they're bringing their four-year-old for the first train ride. And this happens once, two, three, you know, a couple of times a week. There's, there's kids on the side watching the train as we go by, you know, wanting to wave to the conductor and, you know, all that stuff. So yeah, they're out there, you know, and the parents are interested in it as loud and obnoxious as a train is. Um and I was just reading about the New York Cross Harbor Railway, the last remaining car float operation in New York City. Hmm. Um, they're thinking, the, the, the county here, they're thinking about moving 20,000 tons a year of freight by car float. They're building, uh, this, I mean, supposedly they're building a new four-track car, four car float. 
wow. to, hand, to handle the traffic. What, what They want to move garbage is what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, their thing is, wow, we'll get so many tr- trash trucks off the road, which is true. Um, it's a great opportunity. But when you think it's going from like one or 2,000 cars a year to 20,000, uh, that's a lot of traffic. <laughs> yeah, you look at look at oil over the past couple of years and the the car loadings of oil in 2008 versus what they are today. It's unbelievable what a boost you know that's been to the railroads. Well, in fact, I think another... the uh, lead time on uh, new coal or I'm sorry, tank cars of those uh, probably 33,000 gallon uh, 111A100Ws that's out like three years. The lead time on it. Unbelievable. They can't build them fast enough. Exactly. And that's to your point. I mean, if it doesn't go by pipeline, oil will flow by rail. Yep. Yep. Now, now there's a product you could do, not necessarily those cars, but... What, HO scale no, oil? No, N scale. Because there's a, there's a lot of HO scale. There's a lot of HO scale uh, tank cars, but there are not. No, you know, the because um, there's a lot of tank cars, you know, the, like the inedible tallow tank cars, you know, the ubiquitous 50-foot-long funnel-flow tank car mm-hmm. uh, is not something that's been done in N-scale. Hint, hint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it's kind of a unit train type of thing, because there's normally a lot of them. You know, and it's a black tank car. You know, whereas uh, you know, Athern, I think, has done the ethanol car, which is mm-hmm. nice. Um you know, and you have corn syrup, but nobody makes a 19,600-gallon corn syrup tank car in, in N-scale either. Yeah. But I would tend to think that tank cars are probably really obnoxious to do in N-scale. Uh, <laughs> so it may not be your thing. Anyway. Well, there there are some products that Craig produces that I'm very envious of N-scale, and one of them is that uh, air slide 35... 3,500 cubic foot. The dry flow? Um, yeah, the dry flow. That, would love to see that in HO scale. I've, I've got a hunch, fun. I've got a hunch that you will, but you're not, it's not going to be for BLMA, but I've got a hunch you'll see that at some point. Ooh! <laughs> Wink. But, but, you know, there was a time when N scale had, like, for me being a Southern Pacific modeler, beat racks, the wood beat racks, and, they had them for decades ahead of the HL scale. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep, yep. That's true. But, um, so, well, I'm going to make a blanket statement, kind of going back to what we were talking about. Um, I, I see railroads right now the strongest they've been since 1950. And when you start seeing transcontinental routes being double tracked, it kind of shows that they're planning on being around a lot longer, and they're planning on a lot more business coming through. So, I, I, it, when I started modeling and being interested in trains, I, I saw a lot of railroads go under still, you know, or get merged into something else. Like the BNSF merger happened when I was starting, you know, my adolescence. Uh, I saw SP get bought out by UP, you know. So I, I tend to be gravitate towards some of the some of the eras where things are a little bit more rickety, um, worn out, busted up. 
I, I think that's neat. But I, I noticed that a lot of the younger modelers, they're, they're into GMOs. They're into gen sets and things like that. And I think it's great. I mean, this, this is, they're, they're re- interested in replicating railroads as being a strong entity. Um, and I, I know they get excited about manufacturers producing more modern stuff that kind of cater to that interest. Do you agree, Craig? Agreed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody's got their own, you know, specific things they want to model, but uh, there's a lot of diversity among, you know, what exactly that is, but I, I agree. Where? What do you think's next for uh, BLMA? Uh, well, I mean, like I said, you know, we will, I mean, two things. You, you see a lot more freight cars, and also... I'd like to, it's been a while since we've done something new in the scenery department aside from signals, so I'd like to go back and revisit some ideas we've had uh, quite a while, scenery products, um, that I think would be just, you know, day in and day out type things that people can lay out. Um, so I think in the next couple of years, yeah, you'll see more freight cars and more uh, more attention to scenery products as well. And more signals, by the way, too. More signals, great. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Uh, yeah. How the signals we're uh, we're doing in your product line. We will definitely have a new design, two new, actual three new designs of searchlight signals. I'm hoping by the end of the year um, they're going to be the same USNS H2 heads, without the this time without the cabinet below on the mast. Um, oh wow! Also a dwarf signal, so those will be. Again, this is all tentative, so hopefully later this year we haven't made the formal announcement yet, but when we do, we'll have product numbers, pricing, and all that stuff. But uh, I, I look forward to releasing those because that's been a long time coming. A lot of people have supported already the original um, searchlights that we did, so this is just going to be a great addition to the line. Hey, you know, i gotta, I got to get one of those signals shining red just for Paul. Hey, Paul, you know what that signal means? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a sick and twisted person. <laughs> and you're listening to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Yeah, we offer our searchlight heads and our modern heads as a separate product, and that'll continue. Like I said, with the with the scenery stuff, my goal is to always keep it in stock. Um, so that'll just continue to be, along with the dwarf heads that will be coming out, those will all be available consistently. Are, are you considering doing, like, any other aspects like the lunar? Well, interestingly, with the people mooning, we do – I have a whole list of just kind of – a lot of them are goofy ideas for figure sets, but things that are goofy, but again, it's not Godzilla with a car in its mouth type goofy. It's realistic type goofy. However, uh, we need to find a new source. Um, our factory is no longer able to produce new figures because they have to be hand-sculpted, um, and the person that they had sculpting them is gone, and you would think with a billion people – they could find somebody else to do it, but apparently they, they haven't been able to. So once we find a new source at 
um, yeah, once we find a new source for that, we'll be able to push forward with some other ideas. So I, I'd love to revisit that aspect of our scenery products and just kind of elaborate on it because I feel like with just one figure set, it's kind of it's just kind of a random addition to our line where if we had maybe a half dozen different figure sets, it could be a nice complete end of our line. Uh, modern crew figures, I hear it all the time, modern crews. Um, and again, we had some other goofy ideas that I think would be uh, I think would be great for the market. But until then, I'll keep my mouth shut. And let, <laughs> I'll let the surprise be known when it happens. Can you give Can you give any hints? Uh, no. I would say that we we uh, here, here's one set that we thought would be kind of funny. Everybody, we we can't get away from the fact that graffiti is on every freight car now. I mean, it's just something that you have to deal with if you're going to be modern. You know, modeling modern railroads. You have to deal with graffiti. It's just part of the part of the game. So, it's, and you know, I, I I know from my market research on this that if we made a set of taggers, people would be pissed because none of us like graffiti. However, it's again prototypical. So to have somebody tagging a freight car would be prototypical if it's on a siding or in a spur track, but people don't like it. So to counter that, we thought about doing a figure set that would be a cop, a couple cops with their guns drawn, maybe with a dog biting the hell out of some guy that, you know, tagging another guy just, you know, hands up with his knees on the ground. It was something to that extent. So at least these taggers are getting busted. They're getting their their butt handed to them by the law. So, um, <laughs> you know, try to try to flip it on a positive, I guess, that it's, it's you know, you're stopping crime on your layout versus perpetuating the idea yeah. that e- either crime does not pay. Either that or have also have one, uh, have a conductor and, in, in, you know, and with like a radio and the vest. Around, you know, come, you know, have him like around the side of the car with his with his hands out wide. Like, yep, what? Yep. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those legs make him look like Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, honestly, because uh, uh, I uh, I was doing a I was doing a class one brake test on a bunch of cars, and uh, you wouldn't think of it, Medfield, Massachusetts, like a little town, but it's just a, you know. It's, and I walked around the corner of the car, and there's this graffiti on the side of the car, and there's white paint on the ground, and I could, and the I could still smell the paint. Wow. One time I pulled cars out of Mansfield, and uh, I'm walking down the tracks. I, you know, I, I, you know, run the cars together. I walk down. There's a, like a mangled ladder. No people, just a mangled ladder. Because the guys in Mansfield, they, I don't know if you've ever seen the cars that are like totally the whole side is painted. Oh, yeah, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. with words, and you can't even read the stupid thing. It doesn't even look good. It's like, at least Ichabod, his stuff looks nice. The, the people that paint the whole side of the car, it's like, guys, do something that, like, looks reasonable. <laughs> and I, I'm surprised they spent that much money on paint. paint? A ton of money in paint. But yeah, it's like, you know. For, and they yeah. love those white reefers of yours. Oh, God, yeah, they do. <laughs> Yeah. I saw something, I think it was like load limit, where these guys just love tagging those ARMN cars so much that they made white shirts that had ARMN on them. I was <laughs> just like, Here, here's the shirt I need. Yeah, yeah that's unbelievable. But, uh, again, it's part of reality, so, you know, we don't condone it. That's the thing is if we were to make a set of taggers, it, it somehow there's this conception, or I've, I've read this online, that, oh, well, by, by producing them, you're condoning it. It's not the case at all, but I can see where the line gets drawn. So, like I said, we'd have to have some funny figures set to go along with it of them being busted or something of that nature. Right. 
That's an interesting well, model railroading in, a, in its in its form can be used for communication as well, and to communicate, you know, if you're going to do something against the law, you're going to get busted is is a very positive thing and a good reminder, and it, it kind of went along with the billboards and doing the Union Pacific uh, uh, Operation Lifesaver. I, I think it's a good thing to kind of communicate that to everybody to remind them to be safe and, you know, not not get on the wrong side of the law by, by being ridiculous. And also, by being a rail fan, we really owe it to ourselves to work with the railroads that we are guests on. Um, and be the eyes and ears. I mean, if we do that, then this whole sort of terrorist thing about getting prosecuted for, you know, getting on railroad property, it's really a disservice. And it, by being good neighbors, I think we'll, we'll end up better off mm. being able to watch trains and just enjoy the hobby. And You're bringing a tear to my eye, Chris. That's the yeah. most beautiful PSA. Well, I, think I know ever. it's profound, but it's really true. I mean, oh, I know. We, when when I started rail fanning as a kid, you, I mean, you could climb all over boxcars and no one would say anything to you. But now it's a it's it's quite different out there, and people need to remember to be safe whenever they find tracks. Oh yeah, agreed. Yeah, I mean, the problem comes in the opinion that railroaders. Uh, have of rail fans is there are some like that are trains. what was that I like trains yeah I mean you have you have the you know you're coming around the corner and there's a guy taking a picture you're in a double track main line he's taking a picture of you while he's standing in the middle of the gauge of the other track yeah it's like moron <laughs> doesn't doesn't give rail fans a good name when people do that um, you, you know, just have common sense, really. You know, common sense. But like you said, you know, pay attention, be the eyes and ears of the railroad. Where you know, they aren't. They aren't. You know, uh, you know. Sure, I'd appreciate a phone call. You know, some a, if a rail fan called and said, "There's X and Y on the tracks up. You know, a mile ahead, you're going to run into it, or right. two, like two, three miles, or something like that." Yeah, you know. Yeah. That means my life is not in danger. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, particularly if I found out, you know, a rail fan called. Craig, can you talk about anything that we've mentioned some uh, along the figure line, some ideas you had for the future, but uh, that you didn't want to go into? But what about? Are you guys looking at other areas that might, you know, present themselves as opportunities for uh, future uh, products? Um, I, I think one of the biggest, most obvious areas would be locomotives. However, at this juncture, I don't have any plans to uh, produce a locomotive in the, in the near future. There are, like I said, other scenery products that we do want to visit that I think would be great additions to our line that are things we have not done yet. For the sake of not wanting to be called, you know, a liar if they take longer to come out, and, and because we're just not there on those projects yet, I won't, I can't speak about them. At any given time, for instance, you know, we're working on multiple different freight car projects. However, there's some points where, you know, we, we shift things around. We have a schedule made for the year, even two years in advance. 
However, because something will get further along in R&D, or it just makes more sense with the marketplace at that moment, we will shift things around um, based on what internally we feel is the best route to go. So bottom line is, until we announce those things, I don't like to talk about them because then I get you know, put into that pit of, uh, hey, you know, you, you said you were going to be doing this and you haven't done it yet. So we, I definitely, there's no shortage of ideas. There's just a shortage of hours in the day and getting production out of our factories and, uh, you know, moving forward with the whole thing. Okay, fair enough. You also have to pick and choose what you think is going to be a good seller. You yeah. Know, you may have 50 good ideas, but, well, 50 ideas that you'd love to do personally but there may only be 10 that you look at that say another company is not bringing this out and they'll make money, we think. Exactly. You know, the interesting thing about this industry is that, again, you know, we, as far as the manufacturer is concerned, a lot of us do talk. And a lot of us, you know, behind the scenes talk about, hey, how did that project do for you? How did, you know, we'll see other companies do things that we might, I might perceive as a little bit risky. And then it turns out great for them. So there's, there's, it's, it's a definitely, a, again, it's such a product. And when I say product, I mean release driven, um, business. It's very difficult to gauge. Um, you know, I, for instance, I have family members that say, Oh, I bet by Christmas time you're doing a lot of, a whole ton of business. And it's really not necessarily. I mean, if, if anything, our distributors are ordering months in advance to gear up for that Christmas rush. So you don't see a spike in December you know, December 10th per se. So there's, it's uh, along with that same line, you know, when we release a freight car, if it's a great selling freight car, summertime's known for being slow for the model train industry, but if it gets delivered in the summertime, we could have our best month all year in the summer because we released the car at that date. So it's uh, definitely, there's not one, you know, one size fits all for this, uh, for our release schedules and for just the business in general. It's, it's a lot of um, gut estimation and just trying to push forward the best we can. Now, have you had any trouble with uh, manufacturing in China? Aside from delays, um, not not specifically. There, there's always going to be quality control issues of uh, a very small percentage of products that you know slip through the cracks. But we deal with that. Any customer that has a problem can contact us, and we'll you know replace it or repair it. My my biggest thing right now is currently with the production timeframes. There's been a lot of consolidation within the factories in China. Um, a few factories have shut down or kicked people out, and then other factories take on more business. And it's just, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes things that really, I mean, for what it's worth, you know, model raiders in the hobby, I wouldn't even bother to um, to bore them with the stories because it's more business stuff. However, it ultimately does affect the production schedules of things. So if anything, you know, we are dealing with that, but it's just something that we have to deal with as a business. And, uh, just keep pushing them and try to get the product the best we can. I mean, we're not the biggest company out there, so we don't have the biggest pull with that type of, you know, uh, but, well, with the manufacturing process, but we do what we can. And so far, things are a little bit behind schedule for us currently, but um, but they're still coming out. It's just slower than expected. Have you been bitten? By, and I know I've heard rumors that, like, some of the, the, and I think you may have addressed it, and I may have just not understood it, but, you know, a lot of the bigger companies have not had has have they've had issues but on the same ones and now have you been bitten by the fact that you're a small company and the manufacturers may not either want to deal with you or they don't have the capacity to is that what's happening or yeah i mean there there is a little bit of that because just 
like we're running a business here, the factories are running their own businesses. So um, there is definitely, how do I want to say it? There, again, because we're not the biggest, we don't have the most pull. That's the simplest way to put it. So uh, there is a little bit of that. However, um, I do feel like we have some great uh, factories we're working with, great people there, and it really is just a matter of time. Luckily, in this industry, most people are very patient, um, and I appreciate that to all of our customers that are waiting on any of our projects. We appreciate your patience. It's just something that we have to deal with, and I, I'm sure over time things will change. Um, just like anything in life, things change. However, right now we're dealing with some delays. So it's just, you know, one foot in front of the other. Day after day, we try to do the best we can. Well, it, it kind of reminded me of... Uh when I first started out in the hobby, I mean, it would be like one, five years between new models for Mather. I remember when the SC40-2 came out with the narrow hood, and we didn't hear about anything more until like mid-80s for the GP38-2 blue box. So as far as like a release schedule, we're, we're really kind of spoiled with just the amount and variety of new products out there that, that, you know, 20 years ago would have been just surreal, you know, to have oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah, I agree. You know? I agree. So, uh, I mean, a lot of the modelers might remember back into the good old days <laughs> product releases and uh, how how long between, you know, new products. Um, so... You know, it's not a big blow you out of everything you got. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see here. Oh, you know, I, I didn't ask you, and I've never asked you this question, Craig, and Uh-oh. I've been meaning to. Here we go. Uh, what is your favorite railroad, and what do you like to model when you get time to model in the future? Well, you know, the funny thing about it is that as a – as a teenager, I started BLMA doing the custom painting. I worked for a couple different hobby shops in the local Southern California area. I bought a little bit of everything. I have everything from a Kato Mikado steam locomotive. This is all in-scale stuff, by the way, to modern, I mean, ultra-modern stuff. So I'm kind of all over the board. If I had to focus in the future on something, that's a great question, by the way. It would probably be... As boring as BNSF is in Southern California because it's just all GVOs and stack trains, a few manifests, a few ethanol trains here and there, a slab train, but mostly it's just the same thing day in and day out. I'd probably model what I'm used to. Um, yeah. You know, specifically we did the brass bridges. Um, they're modeled after Afton Canyon, which is on the SEMA subdivision for Union Pacific outside of Vegas, and or outside of Barstow, I should say, between Vegas and Barstow. I'd love to model that area. It's beautiful. There's not... Any, there's no, there's no buildings, there's nothing. It's just desert, but it's a great, it's a great place. It would make a great layout. Um, so I'd, I'd pick something like that. I mean, really, it would definitely be modern items. Uh, at this point, anything that we've done for BLMA is pretty much still in existence. Again, the F89Js are approaching, I think they're approaching 50 years at this point. Um, the BX166 is approaching, going to get up to 40 years pretty quick here. So a lot of the cars are at the kind of end of their realm for the railroad, but um, they're all still around, so it'd be fun to do stuff as well where we can use the BLMA products and, uh, you know, show them on a layout and, you know, run them as if they're out there on the prototype today. You know Jack Parker from Central Valley? He built a layout and used it as a tax write-off for research and development. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. back, in, 
help yeah. you get encouraged to build your own layout. And, huh? Hey, X right off. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's one fun way to do it. <laughs> now, do you guys? I mean, I know I know the answer, but uh, do you guys know the story about you know he started that company and what the BLMA stands for? You know why he came up with that, and you know he might be able, he might be able to get into that. Yeah, but I think we ought to get that answer surfaced. What does BLMA stand for? Sure. So when I when I started again when I was 15, I didn't put a ton of thought into it, and it's pretty apparent when I tell you it stood it stood for for, for best looking models around, which is kind of dorky and all that. So now it's just BLMA models. I mean, the actual legal name of the company is BLMA Models Inc. So I've dropped the best looking models around, but it's still it's you know. It is what it is. Again, I've grown as a person, and um, when people ask, I tell them, but that's that's it. So I've, I've heard all sorts of other acronyms, and I'm not going to repeat here. That, uh, I'll tell you guys in person, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the censored version. They're, yeah, they're all over the map, but... Uh, it's, no, it's, it's beep and... <laughs> yeah, beep, 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 beep. Okay, but I, I understand that. Best-looking models around. Yeah, it's... Pretty straightforward. Well, I, I tend to agree with that, though, Craig. You, your product line is really diverse and uh, very inspiring models that, that you've done over the past few years, and I'm particularly excited about the, the Santa Fe rear car. So, yeah, so am I, and I'm, I'm perusing your website, and I'm just finding all sorts of cool N-scale details. I'm like, wow, I... He's got that too. No <laughs> way. You have to buy some of that. Going back to something that uh, Craig and Chris mentioned a while ago about the the hobby. Where's the influx coming? Well, the young kids like you know the electronic end, be it uh, just DCC or as Chris and I were talking about before we went live, Tim Ring's approach to DCC control the. The older guys, the more senior models, be it N-Scale or HO, and I'm not just because you're here, Craig, but they will wander over to where we have the big displays of uh, parts in the store. Talk about what you guys have put out on detailed parts. They're really impressed. And the N-Guys, N-Scale guys buying your grab irons to detail locomotives, I mean, my hat is off to them. I can't even see them in a package, let, let alone putting them on a locomotive. So, It's one of my favorite things whenever I have friends come over to the office, friends of mine that are not model-trained friends, you know, they always say, wow, with your company, and they look, and we have a big display case full of all those freight cars and stuff. It's I always pull out grab irons and say, look at these little things. People put these on locomotives, and they just, you see their eyes, you know, the tongue drops out, and, like, the eyes kind of glaze over, like, what the hell? <laughs> but uh, it's it definitely, um, yeah, there's, you know, it's, hey, I, I love it. So I'm glad other people do, too. What can I say? They do. And I was telling Chris, even uh, as we were emailing about this, have you ever looked at Craig's signal bridges? I said, these cantilevers, the, uh, what, you went up to, what, a three-track or so forth? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, span signal bridge? Oh, yeah. they are just works of art. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And again, that's stuff that we see, you know, right here in Southern California and, and quite frankly, the modern signals you see all over the country. But um, it's it's really, you know, satisfying for me to, number one, go out there, you know, research it and we design it. 
and then you know maybe six months to nine months to a year later we have it manufactured and here it is. On top of that, it's it's gratifying to see people at the train shows and these customers, a lot of which I consider friends, which I've known for years, pick up this stuff, put it on their layout, send me photos. It's just a really great, you know, it's a win-win situation. We're trying to make stuff that people want. And uh, like I said, it's it's very neat to go out in the prototype and say, hey, there's the triple track signal bridge that we did or, you know, any of that stuff. So it's it's a cool uh, a cool feeling to see it all come to fruition. Uh, oh, I, I've got a question for you. Paul's been bugging me. Can you get me a job out there, Craig? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's funny. I always tell I tell the story a lot that we so you know again our, our office is right across from the Fullerton train station. We see trains all day long. Anything cool that comes by, if it stops for long enough to me to photograph it, I'll run out there with the camera like a madman to the end of the platform, get a photo of it, and post it to our Facebook page. So we have a folder on the Facebook page. It says around the BLMA office photos, and we get these comments every once in a while that is. How are you getting any work done if all you do all day long is watch trains and foam? Like, listen, we're, you know, we're still getting our work done, but uh, it's a fun environment. I mean, we, you know, this is a hobby. Again, we're we're running a business here, but we're we're running a business for our hobby. So, in that regard, um, it's a very rewarding and uh, and fun thing to do. But in terms have of the job, you one, but what was that? I was going to say, have you touched on how how many people do you have? How big have you grown? Well, I've got two full-time employees aside from myself. Um, I've got a couple part-time employees, but I also started a second company. I'm not sure. This is I've, – I've made it somewhat known in the industry. We did a little blog post about it at one point called MyMetalBusinessCard.com. So we manufacture metal business cards. This is, I will say, you know, completely, completely separate from BLMA. So um, you know, I'm doing trade shows for that. We've got, again, staff for that. It's – so in the office, you know, we're running both companies. Both are completely separate, but we're doing both. So um, my day my day is split between, you know, getting R&D information, overseeing this and that, talking to the factories, and then also working with the metal business card company. With that, it's, it's, it's interesting to compare both businesses because that is specifically for, well, it's just not model railroad people. And subsequently, it's people that don't have a real passion for what they're for the product that they're buying so it's a very hey where are my metal business cards you don't get this hey man i can't wait to get the bx166 because i love santa fe and i grew up in kansas city and blah 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 blah. you know so very different dynamics but um we we have a small team but a, a very i'd say dedicated and, and fun team that we have and uh Anyway, if anybody is ever in Southern California, you're more than welcome to shoot us an email, call us, and uh, we're there five days a week. But um, we'd love to have you come by and see the office and uh, take a little tour. You know, Chris, I'm seeing an opportunity here. When uh, my wife and I moved to Pasadena, I may have to be his photographer. <laughs> I could camp out on the uh, the station tracks there and shoot photos for you. Yeah, you, wouldn't, no, you wouldn't be the only one. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they'd line them up right there. Get in line, Paul. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. You were trying to be – Paul, you were supposed to be trying to get me a job, not you. <laughs> I don't need a job. I just need an excuse. Oh. <laughs> hey, well, yeah. They don't call it Fomerton. It's, you know, Fullerton, but really it's Fomerton, so more than welcome. Well, let's just give the audience um, your web address, models. Dot com and you're also on Facebook, so look for them there. Be sure to like them. And on YouTube. And on YouTube, yeah. You have some great YouTube videos, too. And uh, yeah. 
yeah, that uh, gets me out of the office, like I always say. So it's uh, fun to do those. That's it's YouTube.com forward slash BLMA models. No Twitter account. Stay away from that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Facebook, YouTube, and the website, and we're always available for a phone call or an email as well. That's great. Well, shoot, we appreciate you coming by tonight. Uh, thank you guys. I, I hope that that's a you know a lot of information. I I know that I I tend to focus on the business 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 stuff of it, but Ultimately, again, there's a lot of what we do that's dictated because we're running a business. Anyway, not to bore anybody. I hope that didn't bore anybody with some of those inside things, but um, that's the vision I have to look at it through. And uh, ultimately, you know, like I, I keep saying, we, we do the best we can with what we're working with and uh, where we want to take the company. So anyway, again, thank you, guys. It's It's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope people got something out of that other than uh, an hour wasted from their life. <laughs> Oh, absolutely not. I do have another question, though. Sure. I'm looking at your detail parts. Awesome stuff. Thank you. Uh, in N-Scale. Uh, the only thing I would have to say, what's up with the bells? They're just, like, flat pieces. Yeah, I know. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you called me out on that. That's something that we did. That's probably, like, a 2001 project. Um, prior to having anything done with injection molding, we were, everything was just etched metal. Uh-huh. So, that's something that, because it was under frame detail part, I thought, well, it's under frame, you know what, people, it's the silhouette of it, it's kind of tucked back under there, maybe it won't be that big of a deal. Uh-huh. Probably our worst selling product today. And uh-huh. In fact, it should probably just be discontinued, but that's that's kind of the excuse for it, not that it is an excuse, but uh, that dates back to the earlier okay. days of, of BLMA. Now, how oh, I, you know, Craig, I really like your class-like covers. Yeah. Yep. By the way, for, for HO scale. Um, I didn't even know that they existed. And here I'm trying to dig up these old ancient precision scale castings and brass. And then, you know, my buddy Eric's like, oh, you know, BLMA makes those. I'm like, really? You know, and yeah, I know that. New voice I could. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Cody Grivno just did an article for Model Railroader and he used the, the class like covers and the blank outs and all that stuff. But yeah, that's kind of a cool set of just. Every different, you know, welded on patch for a class light or a headlight that I could find, and we just put them together in a set. And uh, that's been a good selling product, but it's something that's kind of necessary for any locomotive rebuild project. Right. It's oh. just like any locomotive that had a career, you know. You know, it's just part of it. I heard that. Yeah, I heard that. He has another train outside taking off, so that guy's following the rules to uh, two honks of the horn to start his uh, start their journey to Barstow. Yeah. Well, well, it's a totally different feel when you get to Fullerton and you're watching trains it's nothing like Phoenix <laughs> there's a ton of trains going through there I, I think the the first month you're just going to be like glossing over with how many trains you see in like an hour period by the track when I was at your office I noticed a lot of amazing railroad photographs now did you do the photography on that you know what? Well, in our office, we when I moved into this office three years ago, I wanted to kind of um, pay respect to the old Fullerton train station, what it was prior to Metrolink with the triple track mainline. <clears throat> so I went on all sorts of different forums, phoned friends, emailed friends, and said, hey, can you please, I know you guys have been around since the 60s, 70s, photographing photos of Fullerton, so can you please submit whatever you've got? I'd like to showcase them in the office. So a lot of those photos I did not take. Um, they're, that's literally decades and decades of just great photos from great 
great friends of mine that uh, supplied some really neat stuff to kind of, you know, bring the office to life and show from where you stand what it used to look like 30 years ago and, and even beyond. So it's kind of a cool, uh, cool little environment. Something that people will be able to see for themselves should they come visit and stop by and say hi. Yeah, we encourage it. I mean, we've had people from all over the world come in, a guy from uh, Switzerland the other day, Australia, you name it, they've been here. And, uh, again, if anybody's real fan in, in Fullerton, come on by 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. If not, uh, you can knock. If I'm in there, great. If not, again, 9 to 5 is when I'm, you know, usually in the office. Hey, I saw a picture of you and Pal Sober. So yeah, cool. right. Yeah, Pele came <laughs> by, and he's, yeah, he's a great, great guy. Um, well, Craig, thank you for having some of time to get on our podcast with us. Um, on behalf of the crew, thank you. And, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, uh, just real, real quick mention, Craig was one of the first model railroad hobbyist advertisers. So great to have him finally on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hello, this is actor Michael Gross, and you're listening to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Well, hey, we've got a new segment that we're doing here on um, Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast, and that's praising the suppliers out there when they do a good job or they've got good product. And I'm going to talk about two today, and I know Chris has one and Jim has one. The uh, If you're like me, when I'm putting in DCC, I put in LEDs on my lead locomotives because I, you know, consist them together. And most LEDs that you either make or you buy come with magnet wire. This stuff is super fine. It's got a mind of its own. Uh, it wants to do what it wants to do, and it can be a real snake nest inside the locomotive cab. So I bought a couple of LED lighting resistor boards from Ulrich Models. Uh, actually, a customer at, in a hobby shop told me about them. I got them in, had a question or two, which I emailed up to Ulrich, got a quick response back, and this thing is just like lice bread. It really simplifies rounding up and controlling all these uh, magnet wire LED leads and then allows you to use a regular 30-gauge wiring harness down to your decoder board that you can plug-unplug so you can release the body. So I've got to give a, give a lot of credit to a well-thought-out product. Uh, again, the LED lighting resistor board from Ulrich Models. You can have them populate all the leads, it's got like eight different, uh, eight capable leads on it. I didn't say that right. It, it can handle up to eight leads, and they can be ordered pre-populated with surface mount, you know, the very small uh, resistors there. Great product. The second thing is there is a installer on YouTube. His name is Eric Fisk, and Eric and I got in a discussion one day about speakers, and his DCC installs videos are very, very well done. He sent me a link to a modeler over, in, and I apologize for this, it's either Australia or New Zealand. Not a big deal to us here in the state, but that's probably a big deal to, to uh, Mr. McLean. But he's a master model railroader, and he was demoing on his YouTube cell phone slash iPad size speakers. And so I listened to it, listened to the speakers, uh, and he refers in his video to a stateside company called TVN, like Tom Victor Wilco Miniatures. George Nefstead, he's up in Wisconsin. 
So I ordered them from uh, Mr. Nifsed. They came in and I had him do the enclosure. He's a laser cutter. Apparently he does laser cut wood products. So I got the speakers in, got these custom made wood enclosures. The sound is incredible, just as portrayed by uh, Laurie McLean's video. I even had George make a uh, isobaric enclosure so that I can put two of these wired in parallel and a you know and a push pull. So that's somebody to keep in mind. He has a very nice website. These speakers put out incredible sound, and they are a small size. I'm looking at them, dropping them under smokestacks on my uh, Paragon 2 Northern so that I can get some locality of sound up by the smokestack. So I just wanted to pass that along to you guys. What do you have, Chris? Well, Paul, actually, I was in uh, involved in a project here not too long ago, and what I required to do was lay some rail down up to a joint for a module. And this product made by B&M Hobbies, uh, James Kresge, he he offers these printed circuit boards with milled tie profiles and pads that represent tie plates, and it's just an outstanding product. If if you ever have like a swing bridge or you know something that where flips up and you need to have your rail secured to the end, this is quite the product for that. It's just simple to install. Uh, it secures the rail by soldering to these printed circuit board type plate pads, and it's just simple and slick. And I, I recommend anybody that has a similar situation, whether it be module or a permanent layout, like I said, with a swing bridge or access, the, the website is bnm-hobbies.com. Be sure to go there, click on uh, the Freemo. It, it's, it was designed for Freemo, but it, it could be used for way more than, than just Freemo parts. And click on end tie plate. And they, they run for about 450 They have different sizes. They even have curved. So be sure to just stop by there and, and have a gander and see if that'll help you out with um, some of these situations like I described. Great. Jim, what do you got? Uh, well, on this uh, project layout that I'm doing, I was concerned about um, uh, powering the locomotives. Uh, so I was looking, I saw a train control systems, TCS. They make decoders uh, for HO and various, HO and N, obviously. And um, I saw perusing around, I found some instructions on how to install uh, Keep Alive, uh, K8, where they're KA2, to Keep Alive uh, capacitor in a boxcar behind an N-scale locomotive, and they showed how to do it and how to run wires. I called them up, and I talked to um, tech support, and I asked them, well, do you think the, the KA2 would fit inside the hood? I know it'll fit in a boxcar, but would it fit inside the hood of an N-scale locomotive? And they said, they think so. Pretty, pretty certain it's pretty narrow, and even if not, they, you can send it back if it doesn't, if that's what you're wanting to do. And so uh, the plan is I'm going to put a, I'm going to use the same instructions, but I'm going to gut the inside of one of the Atlas locomotives, put in the Keep Alive circuit, and then run the wires like they had going to the boxcar uh, as MU cables to between locomotives. And they have, uh, they even have uh, newer 
connectors now that are even smaller than the ones shown in the instructional uh, the instructions online. And uh, I ordered them up, and I think I had them in a day, maybe two. You know, it was really easy to order it, and and uh, customer service was was excellent. I have yet to install it because I've had too many other projects to do, but the instructions and uh, and everything on the website, which is uh, www.tcsdcc.com was very good and uh we'll I'll keep you posted as uh whenever I you know finish all the rest of the things I have to do and get that done and once I get that done I'll uh I'll keep everybody posted on how it all works I was Chris. just asking Jim about uh, a a little bit more on the keep alive as being a separate component that you install on a decoder yeah. Um, my my question, I guess, is more: Can you install it on any decoder beyond just the a TCS decoder? In theory. Uh, in theory. In theory. I mean, I mean, you know, they show it on. He explained to me that as long you connect it to the lighting circuit. Ah. Okay. Not. Not that. I mean, I said, oh, you put it onto the track power. No. <laughs> no, you don't put no, it on the track power. <laughs> uh says, no, 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 don't connect it to that, uh, connect it to the lights. Really? He says, yeah, it's explained in the directions. I, I didn't re- I didn't carefully go through the directions, so, and I haven't gotten to that point to carefully go through the directions to do. So, uh, so that's where that stands. But, I mean, it's basically just a big, big capacitor. They said, uh, it'll run an N-scale locomotive 15 seconds with no power. I may be able to avoid having to power any frogs. Uh, with this thing. That was not the purpose of it. It wasn't until somebody mentioned that I said, oh yeah, I guess I don't really need to do that. The locomotive actually runs fine over the frogs, unpowered as it is. But it's not sound, so it's not going to be an issue. The only time you really have an issue with unpowered frogs is sound locomotives. And they've got different sizes, because some of those capacitors get, relatively speaking, quite large. So, and you can buy, they've got a their whole line of decoders that they're just integrating the uh, Keep Alive technology in there. Even Tsunami has smaller capacitors on them. So, but it's a it's really a good thing. And TCS makes a very good product, and they're made in the United States. Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's still the United States. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. Yes, man. I was just narrowing it down because <laughs> you know it's Alaska. That's the United States. That's right. You could even say they're made in the continental United States. Made in the continental, continental, yeah, continental United States. So we'll see how that works out. I don't, you know, I haven't installed it yet. I've had too many other projects going on with that, so uh, we'll see. And I'm in the process of putting in an order for a bunch of N-scale detail parts with BLMA as we speak. Okay. So. All right. Although you may want to add that to a different program, but. (laughs) Well, okay. Okay, and in this segment of Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast, we're going to talk about the the Peachtree Express, which was the uh, NMRA's national convention down in uh, Atlanta, couple weeks ago and uh got our publisher on board joe how was the uh the show well it was it was great actually i i heard that this particular show set the train show part set a record for the last several years so that was pretty exciting okay good attendance from uh the manufacturers 
Yes. You know, I didn't actually count exactly how many booths were there, but it, everybody's, they seem to be pretty well represented, and all the ones that I would expect to be there seem to be there. So, yeah, I, I think it was pretty well attended. And then also a, a big part of the train of the train show is trains, right? It's That's layout. And so there seem to be a good number of layout, you know, from the different scales as well as the uh, the big Lego layout, which was pretty popular with families with kids. Hey, Jill, how big was that layout, actually? Because I heard a lot of controversy in the forums about the Lego layout being too big and as opposed to the other layouts. Uh, it was pretty good size. I, I took one picture and, and posted it on a thread that I have on the MRH site, and that picture was like less than 20% of the layout. And so I couldn't get the whole layout area in my field of view with my iPhone. I would have to have taken probably four or five pictures to get the whole thing. So that would give you some idea of how big it was. Maybe yeah, that's pretty impressive. That is, it's it's large, but yeah. it didn't seem like, you know, when I'm looking at the other layouts, it didn't seem like okay, we've got this modular group, we've got this n scale layout, we've got this s scale layout, we've got the os going. 30 guys here, and then I get the Lego layout, and it's, oh, my gosh, this thing's three times the size. It, it didn't feel like that. It felt big, but it didn't feel like it overwhelmed the layout space. There was a lot of other layouts there, too. There's different size layout, or Legos, rather, excuse me. You've got the big Legos, and you've got the small traditional. What size Legos do they use on this? They, the, That's the thing. Because it's so big, it's a little bit of everything. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it was actually several scenes, like they usually have a harbor scene with uh, uh, ships made out of Legos. Then they have a city scene with skyscrapers, 15 feet tall kind of thing. Um, and then they usually have, like, uh, an amusement park, just a whole different array of different kinds of things. I think this year they even had like a what, like a quarry, like you know, like you're going to do marble, cutting marble or something out of the walls of the quarry. And they did the entire like this open pit quarry, this huge thing, and it was all done with Legos. Hey, uh, Joe, did you see the the GMD one Lego model there? I like did in the ad. Um, hmm. I didn't study the Lego layout that close. I spent most of my time in the booth, uh, the MRH booth. Uh, so I walked past the Lego layout, took a picture, um, walked around it, and then went back to the booth. So, And that was the opening day of the train show. So I, you know, spent all of maybe five minutes looking at it. And there was nobody in there, and it was actually not completely set up yet when I, when I came by. So... And then I never did get back to it. The well, the reason show, I bring so. that up is because I know Jim is looking for one. Oh, he is. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? No. Well, dude, <laughs> you, you were talking one time that you're looking for the GMD one in Play-Doh or the one in, in, in Legos. Play-Doh. No, no. It wasn't Legos I'm not interested in. It was the plasticine one. Oh, okay. And believe it or not, because I, I love that ad, and, and – uh, and I, so I sent a, mes- a message to Jason, and Jason said, well, I do have it, but I have no idea how I could ship it to you and have you actually get it without it, like, melting in transit. 
Oh, you're talking. I know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. yeah he, had an, he had an ad about the GMD one. He says, well, you've got this model and you've got this one made out of Legos. But no, we have these. Ta-da! Right. Yeah. I was like, I love that CN plasticine that plates all the GMD one. I want that. Do you still yeah. have it? Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. And he does have it. It's on his desk. He wow. doesn't know how to ship it without destroying it. Yeah. I heard that there was somewhere in the range of like 50,000 people that visited that weekend. And um, I recall, just as a perspective, Anaheim, was that 2008 or 2009? 2008. 2008. It was like 28,000? Yes, yes. So it was like almost double. I would believe it. I would believe it. We had a constant stream of people coming through our our booth and the thing that surprised me well it, it did but it didn't the thing that surprised me is probably 60% of them had never heard of model railroad hobbyists well that's good for you it's that's good for me absolutely good for you 50,000 people now aware you know yeah and uh, I, I say the part that doesn't surprise me is we've never been to a show in that part of the country before so every time we attend a show that we've never been to that part of the country, uh, I find a lot of people that have never heard of us. So that it was good in, in that respect. Now, there was also a a bigger announcement Mall Railroad Hobbies had, the Train Masters TV. Yes. I'm, you know, personally, I'm pretty excited about this because uh, I just discovered that I can pick up my own online channels for free all over the internet. So this is just going to add to the the list of them that I can tap into and watch and subscribe to. So um, could you just give the listeners a little bit more detail on that? Sure. Um, let me tell you a little bit of backstory. Um, I think Paul was has been, uh, you know, in enough of the staff conversations I think about a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, I was telling the staff in one of the staff calls that, you know, I think the next big thing in the hobby in terms of the Internet and media would be to have a basically a TV channel, an online TV channel on the Internet for model trains, sort of Netflix for model trains. You know, if you do streaming Netflix or Hulu or any of those sort of things, you'll know what I mean. So, but I said... We are so busy trying to do what we're doing with the magazine. I just don't have the resources to expand into something like that. But I said, I know who does have the resources, and if they're smart, they'll do this. And I said, that's Model Railroader. We'll do this. And so what happened this April, uh, in fact, we had heard that MR was off working on on something. And uh, I said to the staff, I said, I bet you they're working on uh TV channel on the internet for trains, and sure enough, that's what they're doing. So you know, and that's what they did. They announced Model Railroader Video Plus in April. But about that time, I also got contacted by a network TV producer and um, PBS producer who also is a Model Railroader, and he contacted me. He said, "Yeah, I've been looking at what Combox been doing with." this uh, train video stuff. And he says, I think we could do something better than that. He says, how about we do this? He, what he proposed to me is he said, I'll, I'll make the videos. I have 
this that's my background. I have all this equipment and staff and everything, and so I'm used to doing this. I'll make them. Uh, I'll fund making them, and then I'll partner with you because you have the distribution channel. You have, at that point, 98,000 unique device views per month on the website, Emirates website. He said, that's a pretty stout number, and so he said, you distribute it. We'll uh, brand it Model Railroad Hobbyist, but we'll call it Train Masters, and I'll make it. I'll I'll do it. And that actually, that was like, where did you come from? You know, because that's the only way we could have done something like this, where someone who had the skill, who had the resources, could do it and then partner with us. So we're pretty excited. Barry Silver, Silver, Barry Silverthorne is the uh, one that's actually the executive producer for Train Masters. He and I talked quite a bit about what we wanted Train Masters to be that was unique and different from anything else we'd ever seen. And uh, so one of the things we want to make sure and do is each video segment is going to focus mostly on the talent that's in the segment. In other words, if we're talking to a clinician or a layout owner or something like that, um, you know, we we want the emphasis not to be on MRH, on train masters, but the emphasis to be on the person. You know, Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine, I've always felt that the person should be center stage. And I know Kalmbach, you know, and you can do it different ways. I know Kalmbach's MR Plus, it's a lot about branding their MR, their Model Railroader brand. So there's a lot of MR guys, Model Railroader guys that are in all of their videos, and all the time they're beating the drum, Model Railroader, Model Railroader, Model Railroader. We're not going to do that with Train Masters. I mean, you'll know it's Model Railroad Hobbyists. That won't be any secret. But our emphasis is going to be on the modeler. What is he doing that's interesting? What's he doing to to, uh, solve? How did he solve his problems of building a layout or, you know, whatever it is, installing DCC, so on, so on. And so that's going to be the emphasis with Train Masters. We have some, I've been talking with Barry, we have some pretty interesting segments that we're going to do. For instance, we were talking about doing a segment called DCC Decoded, and it would be different tips about using DCC each month. There'd be a DCC decoded segment. We're working with, hope to work with some vendors to actually have them help us do some some different segments. And when we have vendors help, what we don't want to do is have a big infomercial. What we want, again, we want to focus on the how-to content to be as useful as possible and have, because this is a paid subscribe subscription uh, streaming service, our philosophy is if you if the modeler has to pay for it and it's not free, then it doesn't have ads. MRH is free, but it's full ads. So that's your choice. You can get something that's free. You have to, quote, put up with the ads. A lot of modelers say that they consider the ads content, so that's not that much of a problem. But still, on Train Masters, no ads. So if a vendor does come on in a segment, what we want them to do is focus on telling us how to solve a modeling problem. And, oh, by the way, here's some products we have that will help you do this. And here's how to use these products properly. So very much information-based, information-centric. So we're pretty excited about it.
You know, I, I got to say, just uh, Craig Martin from BLMA, he already has, like, YouTube videos kind of branded for BLMA, but they're not advertising at all. They're they're going around to a different layout, um, some interesting new products rolling down the line. Would he be able to contribute that to this, or is this going to be more, um, I would say, more and more looked at as an overall, I'm trying to figure out how to even say it. Is this going to be a, a, a site that's going to be like a uniform look to it overall with like a uniform uh, uh, branding over just like, uh, you know, someone contributing a video or a manufacturer contributing a video? Well, we do have, uh, I've talked with Barry. I, I said if, if we can, I'd like to make it possible for people to contribute content. And so what, there will be an overall branding and consistency just like, you know, because it is, you know, Barry's background is in network television. And so he's just taking all of that approach and his vision for this to this Train Masters video channel. And so there will be, it'll be very consistent, very polished, very professional. But that said, we also, like MRH, we want people's personality to come through. We want to give, uh, we, we don't want them to work so hard on creating a brand and a consist and consistency that we squash the personality element. And so we're we're talking about a segment for instance called my layout, my railroad, something something along that line. I don't remember the exact name at the moment, but the idea is that we will give you a set of simple instructions to follow and you can do you know break out your video camera, shoot your layout, send it in We'll put it in this segment. And I could envision something uh, like that for manufacturers, too. If a manufacturer has a cool video that they'd like to have included, then Barry and I will figure out some way to have a segment uh, that manufacturers could put something in. But the one, the one caveat would be I don't want just this video ad, right? Because this is not – this is um, subscriber-funded, so we don't put a bunch of advertising on this. It's to be mostly content. And so, but if we can figure out a way for Craig to send us some BLMA videos that are fun and they're not just a big ad, then, yeah, I, we'll, we'll run them on Train Masters, sure. Well, I think uh, when Chris was talking about that, one of the things I thought about was uh, BLMA showed their, oh, one of their coal guns. And so the whole video just focused on this, I don't know, 60-car multi-unit train of, of these cars and how neat it could look. So it was backhanded promotion of, here's what we've got, but it wasn't a commercial. Right. So I kind of hear you saying that the very subtle demonstrations or something might work. Yeah. It, you know, we're, the reality is the hobby, what makes the hobby go is products in the hobby, right? If you couldn't go buy stuff to put on your layout, uh, everybody would be a scratch building everything. But even then, if you're out, if you're not out digging the copper out of the, out of the hillside, you're buying the copper or the, whatever the metal is, scratch build with, right? So nobody really scratch builds in the sense that they're actually digging the raw materials out of the ground, right? You're buying something that's been processed and manufactured. So it's just how, how far along in the process ha is it, has it been manufactured, right? So, 
People need to know about product, but what I don't want is this constant drone of ads in your face sort of stuff. Uh, it'll be very low-key, and it'll be in the context of to as much as we can do it. Here's something, a problem I need to solve to build my layout, and here's some cool stuff that will help you solve that problem. And, oh, by the way, it's it, BLMA sells it. Or, you know, here's you're looking for some decals, right? And Microscale sells these, has these great decals. But it, it's not going to be this, you know, it's going to be more like, Here's this cool project, you know, when you when you look at a magazine article, here's this cool project, and here's the bill of materials at the end, right? Does anybody ever consider a bill of materials to be an ad? You don't. It's what you need to do the project, right? So that's that's how it will be, very low-key and, you know, very classy. You know, I can see, for instance, if we do a segment on decaling and we use some micro-scale decals to to demonstrate that at the end of the video segment, we'll take the micro-scale banner the button, that the sponsor button, and we'll stick it down the corner of the screen with a URL, that kind of thing, you know. So it's, it, but it won't be in your face. It'll be, oh, if I want to know where to get these decals, here's this thing down the corner that can tell me how to get these decals. So it's more aids and assists, and again, like I said, low-key. But that's kind of, uh, Joe, it's kind of a standard Internet paradigm, hopefully that's the right word, where there's a lot of things on the Internet that, that if you don't want to put up the ad, they'll say, hey, you know, if you want to pay three ninety nine, you can get the version without ad. And a lot of people want that. But, you know, if you don't want to pay, like you said, with the, with a magazine, you get ads. But if you're paying, most people who are paying for something on the Internet are not expecting to get any, any type of ad with that. Right. But as you say, to you know, even those places that you pay three ninety nine for that page, so there or that app, so that you don't have to look at ads, there'll be something down at the bottom saying "designed by." Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. You know, there'll there'll be a quote unquote advertisement in it, but it, it's not in your face, scrolling on the side all the time. Right. Not scrolling. Not popping up while you're trying to look at something else. And so is Titus. Titus is coming through very nice. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. He he, so, he was he was quiet like up until a few minutes ago, and then all of a sudden he's decided that Dad has not been around all day, and he needs to he needs <laughs> to um, squeeze Snoopy. So I'll put myself back on mute. Okay. Then, yes. Because I can't edit. Tight us out without editing you and Joe out, though. No problem. <laughs> okay. So uh, I, I just a comment, another comment about Train Masters and Barry, because I've been working, you know, uh, phone calls and emails with Barry since he first contacted me back in the spring, uh, but I'd never actually met him in person. So he came to Atlanta, and I was at Atlanta, and so we actually got some good time to sit down and, and talk about our vision for train masters and to actually work together. I got to see Barry in person, you know, running around with a video camera, uh, shooting some different things. By the way, um, one of the hosts that you're going to see in train masters is Miles Hale. Miles is, um, best known for modeling with the masters, I think, um, is his claim to fame. So, and he's pretty excited to be associated with train masters now and to be, helping host different video segments. So I think that's going to be pretty cool to have someone 
of his caliber uh, helping host some of these segments. But anyway, um, it was great to watch Barry. Very, very methodical, very thorough. Um, also made it very easy when you're on the lens end of the camera to, to know what to do and to feel comfortable. I actually was the guy with asking the questions on three videos that we did at the train show, and we've posted those on MRH and MRH Theater. But it was great with Barry behind the camera doing that because Barry explained, all right, here's how I want the open to work. Here's where I want you to stand. You know, look at him, uh, shake hands, blah, 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 do this, and then we'll go through the sequence of looking at the models, and here's kind of how I see it progressing. And then at the end, when you're all done, just look at each other, shake hands, and and over and out kind of thing. You know, very, very um, simple, but very laid out so it made you really comfortable you knew exactly what you do when the what to do when the camera is rolling exactly how to proceed you knew exactly what was going to happen and then you knew exactly how to sign off and uh, you know when we're all done barry was like hey that was great you know really encouraging you so it was it was very clear you know he's knows what he's doing with this and he made you very comfortable so uh, i i was just really impressed with that. So I'm. I think we couldn't get a, have gotten a better guy for, to lead the charge on train masters. Okay, and what's the tentative rollout on this? We're looking, hopefully, to have it come out this fall. It'll be either October or November. And uh, what we're looking at is, um, if it's uh, five ninety nine a month, if you want to just pay as you go a month at a time. Uh, but if you want to buy a annual subscription, it's like fifty-five dollars a year. So, so that works out to be like four sixty something uh, an episode. And then for um, charter subscribers, people that want to get on, say in the first three months of when we roll this out, we'll do forty-four dollars a year, which works out to three dollars and some change per month. And we'll let you subscribe for up to two years, so you can lock in that super deal price uh, for two years. And you know, if it goes really well, and and if we get lots of people that sign up for the the forty four dollars, we may in a couple of years run another special. So you could perpetually get the super cheap price too. Okay. So now you're going to do this so that it, uh, it I'm presuming high def. And yes. it'll be available on iPads, smartphones, and PCs. Is that what you're going to do? Yep. It'll be available for all devices. The, con the video content will play on mobile devices, play on desktop computers, laptops, all the, all the usual suspects. So, yeah. Will I be able to stream it over to my Apple TV, Joe? Uh, we should try that. I would... Wouldn't see why not, but we should certainly try that. So no uh, another question for you, Joe. Um, will you be able to set up playlists or anything like that? Because I, I really got used to doing that in YouTube, kind of dividing up some of the, the things that I'm interested in into different playlists and just letting them go while I'm modeling. And, you know, it's just kind of background noise or, 
you know, just something to look at while I'm doing my modeling, too. So is that something that's going to be available in Trainmasters TV? Well, I think any feature request like that is certainly on the table. I'm not sure exactly how many of fe- the feature set like that will be available right out of the chute, but I'm certain that we will want to anything that is a hot feature request for people will continue to enhance it and make try to make those features available for people. So uh yeah, I have we have um a really very cool video playing engine that we're going to use for this and it includes the ability to um put like hyperlinks and different things at the bottom of the screen that are clickable while you're watching the video. So if we're doing, you know, in this segment, we're saying, you know, here we're using these um, this track from microengineering, blah, 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 then we can put right on the bottom of the screen microengineering's URL, and you can click it while you're watching the video if you want. So that sort of thing. And then, yeah, certainly we want to have other features that are available on the website itself. I don't know exactly what that feature set's going to look like because we're just now uh, sort of putting together the software that we're going to put on that site. And we're actually going through the feature list that we want to put in the first the first uh, Rev1 version of Train Masters. And, uh, Chris, since you mentioned the playlist, so we'll certainly put that on the list, see if we can include it. Uh, Joe, there's there's one more thing that... You know, going around to different websites, and the, just I always wished that uh, a company, you know, like Charles Smiley or some of the smaller train video um, manufacturers or publishers, I should really say, uh, it'd be great to have just like one website where you could just jump in. Check out the, if that video's uh, available, like a Pentrex video on the SP, you know, and and be able to even if their content is available through Train Masters, be able to just watch like uh, a trailer of it or something, just to see if that 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 is indeed the video you want to pick up. I, I mean, trying to find trailers on some of these things is pretty difficult, and they. And it includes a lot of jumping around and searching YouTube and then going over to other places. It's kind of a mess. Uh, no, that's, that's an interesting idea, Chris. I know uh, if I can, I also want to encourage video producers of trained videos, uh, if they've got titles that they wouldn't mind putting on Train Masters, you know, we'll have a basically a revenue sharing pool based on views that we'll have for all the content that's on Train Masters. So, you know, if, say Pentrex wanted to put some videos on Train Masters, you know, we could we'd be interested in doing that and then we would have they would get a share of the the uh subscriber fees for the month based on views. So, you know, I would like to encourage anyone who has train-related video content to, as you say, Chris, at least put a trailer, give us a trailer, 
uh, you know, and we could put a URL right in the video um, so they go to their website to get it even. Um, and then the other thing is, like Miles Hale, for instance, he's got a whole set of how-to videos that he's worked with, like Woodland Scenics and so on, to produce. And he said he's going to make a number of those available on Train Masters as well. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to take the entire Model Trains video collection, which is, I think, 13, or no, 15 video titles now, and we're going to put all those on Train Masters. So, you know, right away, when you sign up for Train Masters, there's going to be, like, 50 hours of video content that you can watch right away. And then, of course, the new content that Barry's producing will be adding each month, too. So, yeah, that would truly make it like Netflix, right, for Model Trains. So... I, I would, I would be a subscriber for life if there was just, you know, sometimes there's a train video you're just interested for a moment because it's a, there's some interesting information on there for a modeling project or, you know, it has something to do with like, oh, it has like the signals over at this one place and there's no other photograph I found of it in this era but this video, you know. So you, you'll just want to watch it just like one or two or three times and you're good. Uh, but there's other ones that you want to just own, but before you own it, you want to take a little test drive with the, with the video and see if you like it, you know? So yeah, the Netflix to, to train videos would just be incredible. Yes. So we'll see if we can, we can continue to build a, just a general train video library as well. That's certainly one of my hopes. Now, would a, would one of the users that contribute video, say if they contribute like a how-to technique, would they get compensation for how many views they get on that, on that video, potentially? Yeah. You know, for instance, uh, Mike Confalone uh, has produced two videos for us, and uh, one's three hours, one's four hours. It's just crazy, but it's just full of scenery techniques on his Allagash. And so we made DVDs and we sold those and paid uh, Mike a royalty. So I told Mike, when Train Masters comes along, we'll put those on Train Masters and we'll keep track of the views. And, you know, out of the, the pool that's set aside for paying for video views, you'll get percentage of that based on how many people watched your your videos that month. So, yeah, anybody that contributes content that we end up making, think it's uh, good enough, say, put up on Train Masters, yeah, we'll track the views and pay them out of the pool just like anybody else what about someone making an article would that go would say if they do a video to go with their article would that go under model railroad hobbyists or would that go into train masters generally the videos that i ask people to make for the magazine i tell them we don't have uh we, we don't want this huge monstrous video to make it a half a gigabyte download for the magazine you know we want pretty short stuff. So I usually tell people to keep it two to five minutes for what goes in the magazine. And what I also tell them is we don't want the entire article put the video. Let's say you're trying to describe how to set up the uh, the trucks on a boxcar so that the car doesn't rock. And it takes you a page and a half to describe the process, complete with drawings. And people would go, at the end, would go be scratching their head going, I'm not sure I quite understood that. So if you have something that just 
seems really difficult to explain in text, and you could show them in a two-minute video, and people would go, ah, that's how it works. Then that's the kind of stuff you put in the magazine. Now, if somebody did send us an hour-long video and it was good stuff, we might put the short abridged version in the magazine to keep the magazine from being too fat for download and then put the full meal deal up on Trainmasters. So that's a possibility. It's, that's kind of like, um, I think you did that with little snippets out of your videos on your layout. Like the thing about, I remember seeing a uh, a snippet of the video about installing the taillight bulbs. Yes. You had that, I think, in the magazine. It like just was like, or you had it available somewhere, like three yes. minutes. Yes. You know, just showing how that works. And then, but if you really want the full explanation, buy the video. Right. Right. That type of thing. Yeah. And, you know, then if you get the one hour thing up on Train Masters, then, yeah, we'll, you know, it's in the video pool and we just track views and. Not only will you get paid for the article, but you might get another check show up later because a bunch of people watched your video on Trainmasters, too. I think that's absolutely killer. This is a, a completely different product than what Mall Railroad or Video Plus has done. I'm actually a subscriber to MRVP just out of curiosity. And, you know, just just seeing what what other techniques are out there. But but the, the what you're describing is completely different than what they're doing. Right. What I what I see them doing, and you know, it is it is a philosophy and an approach that you can take, is they are using Model Railroad Video Plus to really drive home their branding. And so what that means is you're going to hear a lot about Model Railroad, or you're going to hear about a lot about Combach books and you know Trains Magazine and everything else. It's going to be very Combach centric. What we want Train Masters to be, and Barry and I talked about this from the very beginning, Train Masters is outward focused. It is not inward focused with this is all the cool stuff that MRH can tell you about the hobby. We are outward focused, so as much as we can bring, sort of get you to see the hobby at large and what's happening in the hobby and who are the people in the hobby that are the movers and shakers making a difference, who are the vendors in the hobby that have cool stuff, not not ads, but more how do you use their stuff and how can you solve your, your layout problems and get a killer layout by using some of this stuff. Very, very outward focused. And uh, I'm hoping that it will give you, you'll, through Train Masters, you'll get a real good sense of the broad sweep of what's going on in the hobby and what's available in the hobby and uh, answers that you can get to really get an awesome layout and, as, as we mentioned, make it possible for basically mail-in or send-in segments from the audience, too. So hopefully that, that outward focus will really um, make it very not only entertaining but very informative. Well, I, I think that's just... A fantastic announcement for Mar Railroad hobbyists. It's really engaging to the readership, and it kind of takes it to the next level, really, as far as uh, being able to watch. And you know, this is really becoming kind of like entertainment in a way, like you said, while you learn from it. But but you know, when you look at your 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 TV ingestion, it's just like, do I really like the show that I'm watching? <laughs> Here's an opportunity to really like what you watch, you know. So yeah. I think that's cool. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way, Chris, because that's certainly the desire and the vision. And then now we have to execute on it. And uh, so far, the conversations I've had with Barry and the sort of the preliminary things that I'm seeing, Barry's actually, he bought a train station years ago and actually had a hobby shop in the train station for a while and then sold sold off the hobby shop. And then, so now, he, and he lives in this train station. So it's like his home, too. But he's got a big part of the station that is essentially unused, and he's building studios for train masters in these areas. So I'm amazed at how serious he is and how exciting I think this is all going to be. So, yeah, I'm I'm hoping that if we can even execute on half of this, I think this will be a very delightful offering that people can enjoy. And I'm hoping that it'll be very clear that it is not the same as any of the other competition that's out there. You know, Joe, I, I got to say, I used to do video editing in high school. And then later on, just for a short career, just did some commercial spots and stuff. But I, I just haven't done it. I, I mean, I've been doing print graphic design and stuff like that for the past 15 years. And when I heard about this, I was just like, wow, I'd love to be able to just pick up like some digital media and, and try that out again i mean it, it's really just exciting for like a contributor side of it to to have that to have this channel pretty much kind of come to light you know yeah yeah well and what will separate it from what's available on say a channel like youtube is the quality of it and the concise subject matter presentation when I first got into DCC, I would search YouTube for how to do this install, do that install. And there's, quite frankly, there's just a lot of crap out there that I would just get disgusted and go, I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time listening to this. And you, it's, you invest time searching out, Hey, this guy does a good series of videos. Well, now we're making it easy for people. They don't have to, you know, weed out the, uh, the chaff, so to speak. You know, we're going to provide that high quality content, uh, from the get go. I think it's great. Yes. That's, that's, um, certainly the value that you get when you have an edited, fully vetted content done by model railroaders who have a lot of years of experience in the hobby. So yeah, you'll get, you won't get the the goofy recommendations or the stuff that's dangerous that could hurt you. Yeah, don't try this at home, kid. Right, or things that, that uh, you know, like train sets on the carpet sort of stuff. And the kitty walks through the, the frame, you know, all of that kind of thing. So, Hey, well, you know, Chris kind of hijacked this. I had a couple more questions about the uh, the Atlanta show. Do you mind if I insert these, Chris? Well, no, I, you left, so <laughs> he just gave me the open hand there to speak to him, so I ran with it. Go ahead. Okay. No. So we were talking about down in Atlanta how the show was so well attended and so forth. There were a couple blockbuster announcements coming out of there, and we've got interviews with a couple of these companies coming up. One, after the announcement by Aethern about the SDP-45, Oh my gosh, the people coming into the model railroad store were just overwhelmed. And then secondly, uh, a real departure for Rapido getting into uh, FlexTrack. That's amazing. How was that received there at the show? Did you get any feedback? I agree with you. I think a lot of people were very excited about 
Atherin's announcement. And in fact, I went over with Barry and we did an interview with Shane Wilson and actually looked at the different, because they only have several versions. Each one's customized to have all the correct uh, detail for that particular road. It's just, it's amazing what manufacturers are doing these days. And, you know, these models are every bit as good as the best I've seen coming from a manufacturer. So it's pretty exciting to see those. Plus, they're coming out with new paint jobs on existing models as well. Like they've got a, a series of Jeeps. They have new paint schemes and so on. But, yeah, people were, it was a buzz the whole uh, SDP 45 announcement for, um, yeah, and uh, the Bendy track, people, at least the people I talked to, they were like, hmm, that's, that's such a de- departure from what Rapido has done in the past. I'm not quite sure what to think of it. What I've heard is that they are doing that because the uh, Atlas Bendy track, sort of two different categories of flex track, right? You've got the microengineering style flex track where when you bend it, it holds its shape. And then you've got the Atlas track was always really interesting because you could take there and you could take a piece and you could just swing it back and forth and it would be like you're cracking a whip, right? Because the track's just so flexible. So I think they're trying to fill a gap actually with their bendy track. And, you know, I wish them well. And the pictures I've seen of the track, it looks fabulous. I actually didn't get to the Rapido booth, unfortunately, because I spent so much time anchored in our booth. I didn't really get around to see much of the show myself. So, Is there a particular item that really stands out, aside from the Atherin announcement from that show, that you think? Um, well, people were pretty excited about Tangent's 4750 Hopper. It's a beautiful model, and literally, you take it out of the box and put it on the tracks. You know, it's got KD couplers, it's got the right wheel sets, it's got everything everything you need right out of the box. And all you need to do is weather it a little bit and you're ready to rock. So, you know, and that's a pretty common car. So people were pretty excited about that. I heard some discussion about the signal bridges that BLMA is doing. Uh, I personally was intrigued by ASU and their new 29 or 21 pin uh, decoder. The idea is all of the wiring that you might want to do in a loco for all the different possible functions, sound, lights, whatever, can all be put on a plug that you plug in. So you don't, because today with the 8 pin plug or the edge connector, I I can't remember how many pins, it's got 16 pin or something, um, you still end up having to hardwire some of the functions in the local or hardwire the speakers, that sort of thing. But with this new 21-pin standard, and uh, I think the uh, NMRA is looking at making that a, stand, a recommended practice or whatever uh, for DCC, with that new standard, you literally just plug a decoder in and it connects to everything, connects to the speakers, connects to all the functions, up to six functions, uh, everything. You don't have to be in there snipping wires or pulling out the soldering iron. To, to solder things to the decoder directly. So I think that's pretty cool. Well, interestingly enough, when I interviewed uh, the uh, the guy from ESU back in 2011, and we, we were talking about 8-pin, 9-pin, and he said, yeah, he said, uh, we're looking at, he specifically mentioned 21-pin connectors because they were apparently already getting ready to introduce them at that time in Europe. He said, they'll be over here sooner or later. And I'm thinking, what would you do with 21 pins? And you just you know, expanded on that as to what you would do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What a great idea. 
Yeah, and then the other thing that was interesting to me is uh, we went over and talked to QSI and their their new Titan decoder uh, and the software that's with that decoder. We also did a video interview uh, with Eric um, from QSI, and he sat down and showed me all the things you can do in this software to tweak the sounds, and it was amazing, amazing the the configurability that you have, the, the different things that you can do with the sound. And, you know, before I went to the convention, I actually spent three days up in New Hampshire with Mike Conflone shooting a bunch of video for our big anniversary bash we're going to do in January, the Allagash. We're going to do an Allagash bash uh, in January because that's our fifth anniversary. Uh, but anyway, I was up there, and Mike was talking to me about how picky he is. He's got sound in all his locos and how picky he is and uh, how frustrating it can be to, because he's rail fan, he rail fans a lot, and he is very, very well aware of what these locos are supposed to sound like. And so I, I was thinking of Mike as I was sitting there listening to this Titan decoder and Eric showing me all the different things that he can do. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, Mike, this is this is your answer, boy. You can get that um, sound to be just exactly what you want it to be with something like this. So I think that's very cool and look forward to seeing more of that coming from folks like QSI. As a, as a matter of fact, Mike was talking about, because he was at Mike Rose's operating sessions t- today, and he was talking about that very thing. He's, his biggest complaint about some of... Um, some of the you know manufacturers of the um, um, tsunamis is the when it notches the recordings that they made. This is how picky he is. Yes, it's they're better than most because they do individual notching. They don't just rev up the idle to make it sound like it's revving up. They actually recorded notch one, notch two, notch eight. He says, but, yeah, but you can tell it's it was uh, recorded without pulling anything it the the end the locomotive's just sitting there and they and they rev the engine up that's all they did they said the reason why the gp38 sounds so good is because they had the locomotive that they were recording uh on its knees he says smoke was coming out of the traction motors and, you know, <laughs> and everything when they were making that recording that's why that one sounds so good as opposed to the 645 turbocharged version, which is, it's not as throaty. Uh, uh, and I know what he's talking about because, I mean, I've listened to these things too. So you can tell the difference between when an engine is actually pulling something and when it isn't. Uh, for instance, when um, Jason Schron with Rapido made custom recordings for their FP9. Well, they went up to North Conway to make those recordings, and they pulled one of North Conway Scenic's steam locomotives behind the engine, just so that it was pulling something. Um, so I do know what you talk, particularly with with Mike. He's very, he's like, I didn't like running that locomotive today because the sound just stunk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah shoot, isn't that uh, Herman? 
Yes. When we did the uh, the podcast, he mentioned, he said that it's important that our data files are of locomotives under load. He said just the same thing that uh, Jim just mentioned about this different sound signature, a whole different tenor to the sound. And he had in that one case, he said, I've just scrapped all the uh, GIVO file that we'd recorded because the engine or the locomotive was running light. He said, I am not putting this out. So, yeah, they're getting pretty fanatical about what they want because they understand of all the about all the Mike Confluence out there who, who <laughs> demand, you know, realism. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, it's now, cool the responsive. Now, have you, I don't know if you'd heard a demonstration of it before, but the um, the TCS wow sound? I've only seen the demo. I know they were at uh, Amherst this past. Oh, were they at the show, Joe? They might have been. Like I said, I okay. spent a lot of time in the booth. <laughs> oh, so okay. I only went out and saw a few things here and there. Okay. But, um, yeah, so I wouldn't know. Okay. Just curious. Yeah. Hey, Joe, when when you went over to the ESU booth, did you, did they, were they showing any of their command stations? Do you recall? Uh, I remember seeing some stuff on the demo table where they were running trains that looked like a uh, command station, but when we did the interview with Matt, he never called out that particular product, so we never talked about it. Okay, I, I'm interested in their ECOS. It's like one of their newest command stations, and um, it, it's pretty prevalent over in Europe, and I was reading the technical capabilities of this thing, and it, it's just so far beyond anything that we've seen over here in the United States. Hmm. So I, I'm definitely interested in what, what their command station yeah. product is. Is, yeah. is this what we were talking about yesterday, Chris? No, uh, that, that, what I was talking about yesterday was actually the Roco Z21. That's another modern sort of command station thing. They're both kind of marketed to Europe for now. But from what I, I gather, it's, they want to bring bring that over to the United States uh, eventually, hopefully sooner than later. What else? Heck, it's not midnight yet here in California. We don't. <laughs> we got time. Well, uh, did you get to get a chance to see any layouts, Joe? Uh, we I, I did see a few layout. What I do at these conventions is I always go on the LD Sig, the Layout Design Sig Layout Tour, which is Wednesday. And that's because they usually do layouts that are more pushing the envelope sort of layouts. The other thing that's also true for an LD SIG tour is because we're, our focus as the layout design SIG is to see layouts that, to, to understand how the layout design works. Actually seeing a layout that's under construction, that's say mostly bench work that doesn't have scenery is fine. Uh, you know, a lot of the bus tours that they do at the convention, they usually want to get scenic layouts. But with the layout design SIG, having a lot of benchwork layouts is fine. And so this year at the on the layout design SIG tour was a lot of layouts with benchwork. And so one of the more interesting ones was this was an N scale layout. It's uh, like double decked N scale layout, and I think he's modeling uh, the Louisville and Nashville in the Kentucky kind of area seems to come to mind. And uh, it was just interesting to see all the different things that he did 
in terms of how I was fitting that layout in the room. Uh, one of the things that, and, and you, you see a lot of little small things that you just go, huh, that's interesting that you otherwise don't get on the regular bus tours too. So for instance, on the N scale layout, he'd taken some Legos and had built a jig to, to do, um, the spacing on double track. So he had this, this homemade spacing jig. So when he laid the track out, this, he could slide this Lego thing down the track and it would space the, the, uh, second track out at perfect spacing. So it's like, hmm, that's an interesting idea. Use the Legos to do that. And, <laughs> it is. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. And, you know, teach these guys to poo poo Legos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the layouts I saw, uh, the other thing that happened on the layout design SIG tour is I actually had a clinic that uh, they couldn't, I, I was a bad boy and I didn't get my clinic request in as soon as I should have. And so they just, I sort of had to take what was left. And so there was a 2 o'clock clinic slot, 2.30 clinic slot on the afternoon of Wednesday that I got for presenting my clinic. So we went out, looked at a bunch of layouts in the morning, came came back, make sure I was back in plenty of time to sit up for this uh, 2 p.m. clinic. Uh, and then after that, then we went out and got some dinner and looked at some more layouts. So we didn't see as many layouts as we could have. It was actually, uh, there was a very nice hobby shop in the Atlanta area. Actually, Train Masters, of all things, is the name of the hobby shop. <laughs> it's a sign. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, Scott Chatfield, remember him? Yes. Yes. He apparently is one of the guys that uh, is on staff or part owner or something of that hobby shop. So, so anyway, I got to talk to him. It was good to see him again. And... Um, so that was that was also fun, but my clinic was was fun too. Um, my my clinic was the topic was the state of the hobby in 2013, and I may take the slides and information and turn it in an article, stick it in MRH one of these days because uh, I've given the clinic three times now. I gave it twice at the Pacific Northwest Regional Convention and then once at the National, and it always got really great feedback from people because I've gone out, you know, on the internet, it's very common to have people go, oh, the hobby's dying, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh. Yes. <clears throat> and so what I've done is I went out and I did research and I have some hard data that I'm using to show what's going on with the hobby and is the hobby really dying? One of the things that you can do, for instance, on Google is you can do Google Trends. And Google Trends lets you look back 10 years and look at all of the searches that people are doing on particular topics. So, uh, for instance, Lego trains. And it turns out that the searches, people doing searches for Lego trains are trending up in the last several years compared to what they've been in the past. And I can actually explain why I think that is. But one of the things that when you're looking at Google Trends, there's a couple of things to keep in mind, too. One is, is the growth 
that's happening because there's more people on the Internet now than there were three years ago, for instance. And the answer to that is generally no, because if you go look at the Internet growth, particularly in North America, uh, it, it was about 2005, 2006. It stopped its steep climb, and it's pretty much flattened out. And in fact, and, and this, this is stats that measure the number of people on the Internet every month kind of thing. Uh, and in fact, in some cases, it actually dips in some months now. So, so the, the rapid growth that occurred on the Internet has pretty much stopped since about 2005, 2006. And there's very, very slow growth now. So if you see a steep upward trend in a search topic, you can factor out that most of that's not because of growth on the Internet. And so anyway, in my clinic, I go through a whole bunch of search topics that are just growing like gangbusters. Uh, Lego trains is one of them. Uh, but if you do a search for, like, uh, Polar Express train ride, in the last year, that's up 2,000%. Thomas the Tank and all, kind, all these searches are up like crazy. One of the stats that I talk about in my clinic is that the, the different generations, you got baby boomers, basically 45 to 65, 1945 to 1965, then from 1965 to 1985, if you're born in that period, then you're what's called Generation X. And that generation is much smaller than the boomers. And then from 1985 to 2005, they call it Generation Y or the millennials. Generation Y now actually is larger than the baby boomers. And that's because in that generation, the families started having three kids instead of two kind of thing. And a lot of families started doing that. And also um, homeschooling families and 12 kids and, you know, some of that stuff, too. So anyway, there's more. That generation's actually larger than the boomers. And so uh, what I think's going on is that Generation Y, a lot of those kids are getting to the typical age where uh, kids, particularly boys, get interested in fun things, fun toys like trains. And um, their parents are looking for fun things to do with their kids that's train-related because I don't think the, the fun of trains has ever gone away in the, in the public, general public's mindset. So anything that involves kids and fun stuff to do with trains, it's all up. All the searches are really up significantly. Uh, and, you know, that's how... We get started in the hobby as the kids get introduced to fun things around trains. And then uh, what happens, though, is the typical model railroader, they discover trains from ages 8 to 12. But then as teenagers, they try to do some stuff with trains, but they don't have a lot of resources. And then they get to 20, thereabouts, and then they go in the military, they go to college, they get married, they discover cars. Um, you know, start a career, all of these sort of things. And most, and um, the NMRA and Kalmbach and different people have studies that they've done to, to see that this is a typical demographic of model railroaders. Uh, drop out of the hobby, usually when they get to their 20s, and then start coming back into the hobby, either as the kids get older or something fun to do with the kids again, uh, sometimes 30s, 40s, or 
as they get older, the careers well in hand, the kids have left home, uh, possibly even looking at early retirement or looking towards retirement, something fun to do with retirement, rediscover trains. So, and, and at that point then, because the career is well in hand and, and the kids have left home or whatever, typically then, though, as older adults, have lots of resources to put toward trains. So then they do the hobby in the large. They do the big layout. They go to conventions. They, you know, they do all of this stuff. So that's why when you go to like the Atlanta convention, you're not going to see the place run over with teenagers or people in their 20s. It's because they're, they either don't have the resources, like if they're teens, or in their 20s, they're off starting their family and, you know, getting a career going, going to college, whatever. They're off doing that, which is probably what they should be doing. But then if they were interested in trains as kids, they they may come back later in in life. So that's that's how that demographic works. So if I take, actually, the different sizes of the generations, the different... Um, that, that known demographic that you get in the hobby somewhat when you're young, but you can't do a lot about it. And then later you come back and do it in a big way because you now have resources. And then couple that with the, the size of the generations and the statistics that we can prove that people are with families with kids. They're very interested and they're out doing train stuff with their kids which means there's going to be a big crop of model railroaders in their 30s, 40s, 50s coming later. Plot that all and all the existing generations, the boomers, the Gen Xs being a much smaller. Plot that all out on a chart. I can show you that I would predict, based on this chart, that the hobby would grow like crazy from the 1930s to the late 60s, and then it would peak in the late 60s and start to taper off through the 70s and 80s and 90s, and then start a slow climb in the early 2000s, and it's going to start climbing really steep about 2007, 2008, start a much steeper climb, and it will probably peak even larger than it was in the 60s about 2020. Wow. So what that all means is that based on that, if any, if this holds water, then I predict that we're about to enter a golden era in the hobby for the next 20 to 30 years or so. And it's going to be better than it's ever been. I'm looking forward to that. Hey, Joe, yeah. let me let me bring up one thing about um, what you mentioned there. What I've noticed a lot, too, just by being in Fremo and going to a lot of shows, and I notice a lot of grandparent interaction with young kids. Yes, yeah. And what I noticed too is they kind of use trains to bind, bind a relationship together. I know a lot of, you know, grandpa and grandson duos out there. And it, it's, it's really cool to see that because it, they're, they're passing down that, that knowledge and that, that, um, understanding of railroading and stuff like that to, to yeah, maybe yeah. even skipping that generation, you know. <laughs> So. Well, it certainly worked that way for me. My son was never all that interested in trains. He would go with his dad when we'd go rail fanning, and but he was there because he was with his dad. He wasn't there because he was fascinated with trains. You know, and I never really, I don't believe in trying to ram anything down my kid's throat. You know, just if they're interested, great. If they're not, then I will take whatever they are interested in, and I will encourage that. So, 
but what happened is my daughter, uh, her son, my grandson, uh, when he was like just a little tyke, we'd put a train video in and he'd just mesmerize. He would, wouldn't even move. He'd just like watching this video. And so we got him like a Thomas the Tank stuffed toy and he treasured that. And he would go to bed with this toy. You could literally sneak into his bedroom after he'd fallen asleep, take that Thomas the Tank, and he would start hollering, and he wouldn't quit hollering until you gave it back to him. And so as he's gotten older, I'm Grandpa Trains, and anything Trains, he wants to, to come and help me with the layout, uh, all of this sort of thing. So, yeah, it skipped a generation for me, too. Well, I always – somebody has said this to, to me and in my line of work now. Uh, particularly in the midday train that I do, um, it's, you know, it, there's really not very many people on it. And uh, virtually every day I'll see a mom or maybe a mom and dad with a kid at the train stations watching as we go by. Little, you know, little kids, you know, and they're not normally the same kids every day. Uh, you know, so we, ha I, you get, you know, the grandparents bringing the, you know, four, five, three-year-olds on the train for their first train ride. This, this is happening to me virtually every day, or at least two or three times a week. Yeah. So, the interest is there. It's not. It, it hasn't gone away, and I, I think it's interesting that you're talking about all these trends that have occurred in the past when there was no internet. Now, yes. the difference being is there were a lot more trains then. So now there are fewer trains, but now you have the internet. You have greater access to a lot of the history and stuff that just wasn't available. That's right. That's right. And, uh, for instance, in the model airplane hobby, a big niche interest is World War II airplanes. And so, you know, there's a, there's stuff in magazines and people building these models. You can go get ready-made models of all kinds of different World War II aircraft that you can build and, uh, you know, fly, radio-controlled. How many of those people that are building those actually saw a World War II aircraft in operation during World War II? Probably very few at this point. Well, and yet it's a very big interest in the model airplane hobby. I mean, I'm not a model, model. I don't build model airplanes. I did when I was younger, but I'm. I obviously have never seen, you know, World War II aircraft in their quote unquote natural environment. I love them. I'm, you know, P fifty one Mustang, Cadillac of the skies. I've actually flown one, so uh, that was a that was a great trip. I've flown in a B seventeen. I've flown in a P fifty one. You know, so I I know what they all are and. Give you all sorts of foolish stats, but you know I've never, <laughs> I never saw them in the natural environment. Right, so that's that's right. very true. Well, and there's you know, we we know about things like um, Polar Express really um, created a, a sort of renewed mystique in the public for trains, and then now the latest is the Lone Ranger movie. Trains is all over that movie. That's a big part of the action that happens in that movie. So here we go yet again. Uh, the public's being reminded of how cool trains are again. Hmm. So it just it just keeps coming. So I'm very upbeat about the future of the hobby. 
Well, also keep in mind that railroads are in a period of expansion right now. I mean, they're investing like $15.3 billion in their infrastructure. So it's kind of like a golden age for railroads, too. Yep. Modern railroads are, are experiencing just they're trying to build up their infrastructure for a boom time. So imagine what's next for them. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, those planes that you uh, the flew, the... The P-51 and the B-17, were they real or Lego? Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Just kidding. No. I couldn't pass it up. Uh, uh, no, no, no. no. That, that, that was, I, I, I hadn't lost the weight. I remember getting into this P-51, and if you know anything about a P-51, it's a single-seat aircraft. But they put a, it, it's a bubble canopy. And so behind the pilot, there was a, there used to be in its natural environment a fuel tank and a radio. They take that out and they can put a seat behind there. And so this is the parachute, and that it's all it is is a metal, nasty metal chair. One of the reasons they had parachutes was because it was the seat cushion. And so the parachutes in the in in the seat, and they fold up the the front the pilot seat. They fold that up, and you have to get in the seat and back. And he says, uh, and the pilot's like, okay, that's your parachute. And I looked at him. And I looked at the plane, and I looked at him again, and I said, if you honestly think that I'm going to be able to bail out of this airplane, if there's a problem, you're out of your mind. He says, no, 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 really. The canopy just falls off. No, I understand that, but no. He says, you'll be able to get out, really. Hopefully it doesn't come to that, but you'll be able to get out. I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, I shoehorning <laughs> myself into this airplane. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. grease your hips to get out. One of the things, you know, you were talking about cool layouts. One of the things that we got to do at the Atlanta convention that was just really a big hoot was uh, Bernie Kopinski had a Civil War layout, and it was off in a side room. We actually, the MRH team, signed up to actually do an off-session on this layout. And so we got to, it was uh, myself and my wife, Patty, and Les Homos. Les was the engineer, I was the conductor, and Patty was the brakeman. So we actually ran, like a, did a two-hour op session on this uh, layout. And basically we had this train that we ran onto, out of staging, onto the layout, and there was a bunch of work that we had to do, drop cars, pick up cars, turn the locomotive, do all this work. And it was battery-powered, and it was Lincoln pin. Talk about a different way to do to run trains. It was, it was like I said, it was a hoot just to actually experience running battery-powered DCC. He uses the uh, Northwest Short Line system for battery power, running battery-powered DCC and doing Lincoln pin couplers. And he actually had little pins that go in the couplers and you have a magnetic wand that you either use to pull a pin out of the coupler or to put a pin into the coupler. And then to make things more interesting, he told us that the front coupler on this steam loco was big cow catcher. Uh, the front coupler was not operational at the moment. So we couldn't actually couple up with the front of the loco. You had to really think about it. 
uh, I had a couple of cases where I'm going like, okay, well, we'll turn the local and we'll go over here and we'll pull this card. Wait, whoops. The coupler on the front doesn't work. I can't pull the car doing that. Uh, we're going to have to wait to turn the loco. We're going to have to keep the loco facing so that we've got the back so that we can pull cars with this thing. So, yeah, we had to think about it. But it was fun. And uh, my wife, Patty, has she's done track warrant operation, train order operation, and now uh, Lincoln Penn Civil War era operation. Uh, she thought it was kind of fun. She she thought the Lincoln Pin stuff was was really interesting. Yeah, he said he wasn't going to go uh, all out on you guys, and he didn't he didn't put the working brakes on the cars. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> he, he didn't really want to torture the people totally. But it was some fantastic modeling. O scale, that's a perfect scale for doing that sort of thing with the link actual Lincoln pins. It was just a lot of fun, and you know. Bernie's a great modeler, and so the scenery was fabulous. The, the detailing and weathering on the equipment was wonderful, and it was just a kick. I just we just really enjoyed it, all of us. And and the O scale being at Civil War, actually the equipment isn't that large, is it? It's no, that's the thing. It felt more like S scale, just mm. in terms of the size of things. Yeah, because that's well, one of the one of the things people say about Civil War modeling in particular is just the equipment is so much smaller that you can get away with things you wouldn't think you could do in O scale, and yet it works. Yes, now, yes. Now it was interesting because the the loco and everything, you know, like I said, it felt more like S scale just because everything was smaller. Um, but we actually went to the museum in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area where the general is. And if you know the great train chase or whatever. The great um, locomotive chase. That's in the great locomotive chase, yeah. In um, Kennesaw, Georgia. Yes. So, you know, that's the, that's an actual event that happened during the Civil War where those the general and some other locomotives were uh, involved in sort of a covert operation where the North was trying to blow up bridges and stuff to try to mess up the rail network for the South. But uh, anyway, the, we saw the general in person, the real deal, life-size. It doesn't look that small. It's certainly not as big as a, an F7 or a SD40 or something, but it's not tiny either. So, No, no. Uh, I'm just curious because I used to live in Kennesaw, actually right down the street from that, ma- that museum. Uh, is the hobby shop still like right across the street, or did they close? I did not see a hobby shop while I was there, so yeah, there I is don't a, think they're there now. Yeah, that's too bad because it was a good hobby shop. Like right across, if you remember where the 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 museum is. Yes. And there's a train station. Yes. There's a there's the old train station there. Then there's the railroad crossing. Yes. And did you go to the Opsig um, at the yes, trackside grill? Yes, right next, right next to the trackside grill, there was a hobby shop. And, you know, literally, you know, if anything ever happened to anything on that crossing, the, the trains would go right on the hobby shop and the grill, actually. That's okay. A good re- that's a good restaurant. Um, well, okay, well, I don't remember. All I remember is that there were two restaurants right next to each other. Uh-huh. So, so my guess would be the hobby shop's now a restaurant. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was not a very big building. It was just like a little. Now it was in the. It was 
it, there must be a restaurant now because it was actually in the same building as the trackside grill. It was on the other side of it, closer to the closer to the crossing. Yep, it's okay. now a restaurant. Bummer. Oh well, at least Trainmaster Trains was there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Great hobby shop too. Yeah. Um, I never got to that side of town though. So that was the that was the big layout event for us actually. Uh, did you um you didn't by any chance get to see Jared Hopper's layout did you? No, we didn't. Yeah, too bad. I I room with him at Cocoa Beach the last couple of years, and uh, I know he's been doing a lot of work on his railroad and uh, supposed to be quite nice. Yeah, Simple. I've I've heard about it as well, but. You know, a part of our problem was me having this clinic right in the middle of the day with uh, layout tours. So some of the layouts that we had to drive a little bit to get to, we didn't mm-hmm. manage to make it to them. So uh, I, if his was on the tour, it was probably a bit of a drive to get to it. So Yeah, he's in Athens, I think. So. Yeah. It's, which is a bit of a drive. So. Yeah. Another yeah, so, pause. Yeah, so that was the, that was the convention. We gave away all of our discs. I, we took something like 800 discs to the show. They were all gone by Saturday afternoon. So, you know, that's a good thing, too. One of the things I told the staff is I think in the past we've done more. We've done like 1,200 discs or whatever. And uh, then we end up bringing discs home. So I said, all right, this year we're going to go a little lighter, 800 discs. And my goal is I don't want to bring any discs home. So I got my wish, but because the attendance was so much larger than it's been in the past, we probably could have brought 1,200 and not taken any home either. So now, yeah. would you would you say the attendance was higher than say Springfield? Because if you said 50,000, that means Springfield's normally enormous, stupid amounts of people. Right, but it's spread across a lot more force Yeah, mm-hmm. felt about the same to me. Yeah, uh, but then you know. I heard that there was, like, parents with kids six layers deep around the Lego layout and things like that. So, And I was trying to be a good boy and stay in the booth, and so I didn't get back there at the height of the traffic to mm. see where people were congregating. I, that would have been nice to see. Cause, you know, I'm kind of spoiled because I'm, I'm here and I go to Springfield every year. It's only an hour and a half away. So mm-hmm. I get, you get kind of spoiled by that. And it would have been nice to see, although, you know, Springfield's a mosh pit. But <laughs> it sounds like that's what uh, this place was. I, mean, I haven't been to that venue. But, I mean, if you had that many people in less space, that would have been amazing to see. Yeah, I understand that when they open, you know, because they always open the train show first to the convention goers in the morning, Friday morning, and then noon, 1 o'clock, they open it to the general public. My understanding was on Friday afternoon and Saturday morning when they opened the center to the general public, the line was like all the way down the building out into the parking lot kind of thing. Wow. People trying to get into this thing. And I even uh, had some model railroaders who had driven an hour or two to get to this thing were standing in line and got tired and left because the line was so long. Wow. Wow, it's like you're you're trying to get to your favorite band or something, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, July in Atlanta doesn't sound like a particularly pleasant place to be. You know, it isn't. I've, I've heard, you know, 100 degree, and I've been there actually, 100 degree temperatures with, uh, you know, even still over 100 degrees at night, at 11 at night, and, you know, humid as all get out. It was actually a very pleasant week. I think that probably helped contribute. Uh, I think the temperatures were like in the 80s, 
And uh, there was even one of the evenings there was a thunderstorm, and so it cooled down and very pleasant breeze and, you know, some thunder and lightning off in the distance, maybe a little bit of sprinkle, um, that sort of thing. So it actually made it fairly pleasant mm. to be outside. So it was not, from what I've seen or experienced in the past, it was not typical July in Atlanta, it was actually pretty nice. Yeah, that is that is quite unusual. <laughs> yes. Although we did have a whopping thunderstorm right over the convention center on Saturday afternoon. And it rained so hard that I heard there was like four inches of rain and one day kind of thing. Mm. Uh, but it, it was just several inches in an hour. Rain so hard, there was like six inches of water running down the roads, and there was so much water coming down the downspouts that the downspout drainage actually went underneath the concrete floor of the expo center there where we were, and so there was like a little plastic cover over the, the pipes that came out of the downspout, and right in front of our booth, this plastic cover right at the height of the downpour this plastic cover popped off and shot up in the air, and there was this geyser of water coming out because, oh because they couldn't handle the massive water. Mm. And so, yeah, <laughs> it was some excitement there for a while. Good times. Yes. Good times. Hey, Joe, I, I know you did a, a clinic there. But did you have a chance to go to any of the other clinics going on that week? I did. I went to a few. One of the really interesting ones was, um, well, there was a, a good one on train orders, operating with train orders. And then there was another great one on actual, and I'm sure uh, if some of the guys on the MRH forum uh, could have been to this clinic, they would have been like, oh, yeah. It was a clinic on how to use mobile devices for throttles. Ooh. Oh, yeah. A lot sure. of different <laughs> examples and different different software that you get, different apps, different devices, uh, how to use JMRI, but also a lot of examples that are not JMRI of how to how to use your mobile device for throttle. It was a pretty pretty interesting clinic, and the guy had obviously done a lot of homework. Also went to a clinic that was an introduction to op operations. He covered the gamut. Pretty well. It's very thorough and all the different options, different ways that you could run trains and do them in a more prototyp prototypical, realistic manner. But, you know, all the way from Mother May I to train orders and track warrants and everything in between and all the different flavors of car forwarding systems. And do you want to just run trains semi-serious to total serious? Everything in between. In fact, I liked his presentation so much, I asked him to do an article for us. So we'll see what comes of that. Well, it sounds like the, uh, especially the smartphone, iPad, Kindle type interface, there's a, uh, a train master's uh, subject right there, a video on that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, that, that, that could be a, a whole podcast right there is talking about all those well, well, what makes it better for uh, train masters is you're going to get the the visual on it. Sure. Instead of talking yeah. concept, you you would lose me. Uh, I'm right brain, but you know if I could, I, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's okay. 
Jim and his Lego planes and me being right-brained. So, yeah, that would be a cool program. Yep, it definitely would be. So So what else, gentlemen? I think that kind of taps out the convention. I think it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I I think that that did the convention right there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well. All right. Well, appreciate your time, Joe. Okay. Thank you, Joe. All right. You bet. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Joe. Have a good day. Bye now. And that concludes this month's issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. From Chris, Jim, myself, Paul Gillette, thanks for listening. And I got another uh, good show actually um, underway for next month. All right. You have a good day now.